and Hulk Hogan will go at it one-on-one. Only one place to see it on TNT. Live this coming Monday, WCW Monday Nitro. You're a marked man, Sting. And you're going to find out exactly why they call me the Crippler. Observe this, brother. This is what we call a rag sheet, brother. They say that Giant is going to win the match. They said Macho Man was hurt. This is like this is like a dinosaur compared to the internet, brother. We've got to congratulate you. You are the new WCW World Heavyweight Champion. You're a friend of mine, Hulk Hogan. We've been to hell and back about a dozen times. And I value your opinion. I didn't see nothing, I swear. Hello, my name is Bob Bamber and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast going back in the time machine to November of 1995 for Volume 2 of this month's show. Volume 1 is the WWF show, looking at Survivor Series, and Volume 3 is all of your ECW action, including November to Remember, which leaves us with Volume 2 on WCW looking at World War 3. I'm being joined first by Rory McNamara. Rory, hello. Hi guys, how are you doing? Uh, very well, and Chris White. Hi Bob. Uh, Chris kicks off with the news. Randy Savage is the new WCW World Heavyweight Champion in the vacant title in the 60-man main event at World War III. The title was vacated despite Jimmy Hart's best efforts, which included a clause in the Halloween Havoc main event that Hogan would lose the title on a DQ. Savage won the title in, a, in the three-ring Battle Royal main event, although the finish was mild in controversy, with Hogan incorrectly being ruled to have gone over the top rope. The pay-per-view was also noteworthy for a bizarre interview segment involving Hogan and Sting that opened the show. Firstly, Hogan jarringly went back to the red and yellow with no real explanation as to why. Then, Sting threw his black vest into a bin, which was set on fire by some pyro that briefly caused an actual fire. Finally, was a reference by Hogan to the rag sheets, talking about their allegedly incorrect reporting of certain events. Hogan said, observe this before throwing some paper onto the fire. The rest of the World War III pay-per-view represented one of WCW's better efforts of the year. Johnny B. Bad retained the TV title over Dallas Page in a match with the Diamond Doll as a prize for the winner. Kazuki Sasaki, who had defeated Sting for the US title on a tour of Japan, retained the title over Chris Benoit, and there were also wins for Big Bubba, the team of Paul Nakano and Akira Hokuto, Lex Luger and Sting. In the battle for ratings on Monday nights, WCW won a victory of sorts, putting Hulk Hogan versus Sting in their first ever match on the November 20th Nitro. The match combated a live edition of Raw, coming the day after a pay-per-view and a title change, which featured the storyline collapse of Shawn Michaels' mid-ring. Nitro won the ratings with a 2.5 against a 2.3, although for a match of the magnitude of Hogan and Sting, it should still be considered a disappointment. The bizarre U-turn on the dark side of Hulk Hogan was probably caused by WCW delaying or scrapping plans for Hogan taking time off. 
Originally, he wasn't going to be wrestling at all in November, but WCW feel the WWF are vulnerable right now, and as a result, wanted to keep Hogan around. The story partially explains how the world title got into such a model. While Savage was the champion, Hogan left the pay-per-view with a legitimate claim to the title. Sabu left WCW this month after his initial WCW contract expired and returned to ECW on an initial one-night deal that you can hear about in Volume 3 of this month's show. The company, it is said, were not happy with him over many things, including his out-of-the-ring brawling and inability to keep to time. That being said, WCW are said to be extremely happy with the other three ECW signings of Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko. Ding! I gotta believe you suffered brain damage at Halloween Havoc. You've been around long enough to know when you jump on one, you jump on us all. And what you may have thought to be a stroke of genius was in fact your death warrant. Because while you sat and regaled your obsequious lapdogs with your reprehensible act, Double A and myself scoured the global landscape, and we found ourselves a whiskey-drinking, skirt-chasing, fist-fighting son of a gun that'll knock your jock off. And that makes four. And that makes for a whole heck of a lot of trouble for yourself, Hogan, Savage, and the rest of the prima donnas that pollute WCW. Sting, you saw Flair or Pillman, or Anderson alone for the last time. It'll never, ever happen again, because when we're in Canada, aching the cog of the machine that's going to run WCW through the 90s, everyone's fate was sealed, and shortly, Nakanishi, we're going to make an example out of you. Sting, Hogan, look into that crystal ball at your fate. Enter the fourth horseman, the crippler, Benoit. Sting, it's quite obvious that you're not aware of who you're dealing with. Your arrogance will not be tolerated by the horsemen. Your ignorance in taking advantage of a situation in which one of the horsemen were involved will not be tolerated. You're a marked man, Sting, and you're going to find out exactly why. They call me the Crippler. Get out while you can. All of you, the life you save may be your own. We start with Saturday night on November the 4th. We cut to WCW Pro. Bobby Heenan is with Sonny Ono and Chris Cruz. Heenan says he and Ono have purchased some time on the show to air some Japanese matches on the Pro. This is a way of getting some Japanese talent into US homes ahead of their link-up in the coming months, particularly at Starcade. Brian Pillman and Anderson defeated Dave Sullivan and Cobra. Sullivan came out and resolved the Evad moniker. During a long main event between Harlem Heat and the Blue Bloods, Sherry unsuccessfully attempts to break up a pin with her shoe. Colonel Parker comes out and breaks up the pin for her and carries her to the back as the Heat win the match. Arn Anderson says he and Ric Flair are better together than apart. Flair says they have found the fourth man, but they won't reveal who it is. Nitro starts on November the 6th with Eric Bischoff saying that the fans will get the choice between one member of the Red Heel locker room and one member of the Blue Babyface locker room. They're pretty much angling for Sting against Flair here. 
We open up with the Giant against Cobra. Giant intimidates announcer Dave Penza into announcing it as a title match. Anyway, Giant chokeslams Cobra and wins the match in about 10 seconds. Mean Gene Oakland is in the red locker room with Scott Norton, The Shark, Diamond Dallas Page, Big Bubba, Ric Flair and the Blue Bloods. Shivoni's in the face locker room with the Nasty Boys, Dave Sullivan, Mr. JL, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Alex Wright and Johnny B. Bad. Sting. We're in Venice Beach visiting Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. Uh, both are dressed in black and Hogan seems to replace Jimmy Hart with some hobo. Hogan says he's got a hit list. He also seems to be wearing red-heeled cowboy boots. Kevin Sullivan has a match with the Renegade, which was absolutely awful. After the match, Jimmy Hart uses water to remove the R-face paint from Renegade's face. We cut to ringside during a match between Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero. There's now a whole contingent of Japanese people dining from a table in the crowd. Heenan is staying quiet. Guerrero pins Benoit, but his legs are on the rope. Bizarrely, the front cover for the videotape of Full Brawl includes a photo of Vader. On commentary, Heenan is drinking sake. Shockingly, the fans vote for Sting against Flair in the main event. Flair eventually submits in the Scorpion Deathlock, but Sting leaves the hold on. Mr. JL and Eddie Guerrero come out and try and reason with Sting. Eventually it takes half a dozen baby faces, but Sting releases the hold. He then puts the hold back on until Lex Luger comes out and gets in Sting's face. Luger chats with Sting and Sting relinquishes the hold. He and Luger leave the ring together. After commercial, we're back in the ring with Jimmy Hart, the Giant and Kevin Sullivan. Hart says there was a stipulation in the contract that said that if Hogan lost by disqualification at Halloween Havoc, then he would lose the title. A WCW legal representative said he's been on the phone with Nick Bockwinkle. Bockwinkle and the Championship Committee ruled that due to the dubious nature of the disqualification, the title was being held up and the winner of the Battle Royal will be declared the champion at World War Three. We start off Saturday night on November 11th with a relative shock as Chris Canyon defeats uh, Disco Inferno with a roll-up. Sting does a sit-down interview addressing Flair and Luger. He says now people are asking him about what Luger said to him on Nitro. He wasn't revealing anything for now. In a segment that can only be brilliant, we join Jim Duggan in Ireland seeking to find out more about his grandparents who are apparently Tate Fish champions. Duggan's 2x4 has made the trip across the pond in a carry case. The historian takes him through his family history and gives him a folder of information to take back with him. Slightly corny, but this was a cool segment. We join Brian Pillman and Arn Anderson backstage. Pillman says that Sting should know that when you pick on one, you pick on four. Anderson says that they went to Canada and they found the machine that will take on Hogan, Sting and Savage. Out comes Chris Benoit. He says everyone will find out why they call him the Crippler. During the main event of Arn Anderson and Kurosawa, Brian Pillman is out seemingly trying to reason or pay off Colonel Parker. With the ref distracted, Chris Benoit came out and back suplexed Kurosawa on the outside and that was enough for Anderson to win. We hear from Hulk Hogan, who's now dressed as the Grim Reaper, so too is Randy Savage. Savage promises to bring Hogan the head of Meng. Hogan says he will stay in the darkness, lurk in the shadows, i.e. not appear on television. Hogan then gives Savage the, quote, Eye of the Tiger as the show goes off the air. We open the November the 13th Nitro with a big pyro display. We're back with the Grim Reaper, Hulk Hogan, who says Macho Man is on a mission tonight. He says he doesn't know where Sting's head is at after what happened with Luger. Savage runs out from the crowd, surprises Meng with an attack. He wins with a diving elbow. But Shark ruins his party with a post-match attack. Luger comes out and continues the attack. Kanzuki Sasaki is out next. He's part of the Japanese contingent we will be featuring on WCW television ahead of Starcade. He doesn't fare especially well against Chris Benoit, who is a trio of German suplexes for waiting a dragon suplex into a bridge for the three. 
John Lee Bad and Eddie Guerrero have a fine TV matchup with the pair having an intense brawl. Bad even pulls out a tombstone part of the which Guerrero kicks out of. The match ends in a time limit draw as the pair just keep brawling. Very good stuff this. The pair shake hands and hug after the match. The great in-ring action on the show continues with Sting defeating Dean Malenko by roll-up. After the match, we get an interview with Sting. He says he's never dreamed that Hogan would come knocking at his door. Sting says, here in WCW, he's a big dog. We start Saturday night on November the 18th with Paul Orndorff. He doesn't have his mirror and even his music just doesn't seem to be working properly. Orndorff later gets a call from Gary Spivey. Spivey reassures him that everything will be alright. Then a package arrives, a new mirror and a lucky penny. We get a post-match promo from Darwin Dallas Page, who gets two bigs for his boots when it comes to his relationship with the doll. So much so that the doll finally talks that back to him and storms off in a huff. Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero have a fine match that lasts about 12-13 minutes for Ben. Benoit goes for a belly-to-back suplex on the second rope and both men can't answer a count. We get a video package with Dean Malenko. He says he's the man of a thousand holes and introduces us to the Texas Cloverleaf. We join the Dungeon of Doom. Taskmaster says he's giving King Curtis the gift of laughter in the form of Hugh Morris. He laughs a lot. We're underground with Savage and Hogan. Savage asks where the Sting has been in all of this. Hogan calls out Sting ahead of his match on Monday. Hogan looks terrifying with blackface paint around his eyes and on his cheeks. Savage not much better. Hogan seemingly almost named Rox Vader in this promo. Opening Nitro on November the 20th, the Shark attacks Scott Norton as Norton walks out for their match. Norton wins with a quite impressive scoop slam. We get a promo from Jimmy Hart trying to get inside Sting's head, implying that Hogan never had his back. Disco Inferno delays the start of Eddie Guerrero against Ric Flair, trying to sell us his CD. Flair walks out in a suit. He's actually injured, so Brian Pillman is out to replace him. Flair says Anderson and Benoit are on the jet, keeping the girls warm. Guerrero picks up a clean win with a frog splash. Jim Duggan tripped up Big Bubba with the ref blindsided, causing him to lose the match against Robario Hawk. Savage leads Hogan out ahead of his main event with Sting, but it's a bruise as Hogan comes through the crowd wearing a black face mask, red cowboy boots and trousers that say Hulkster and Giant Killer written on the side. Sting, for what it's worth, is wearing red and yellow. Hogan was booed throughout the match. They also seem to be having someone feeding Bischoff lines when Roy is on commercial so that you can tell channel flickers to stay tuned. Hogan fought out of the Scorpion Deathlock to a chorus of boos. The match, of course, ended when... Dungeon of Doom ran out and started laying waste to them both. Giant comes out and goes for a choke slam to Sting and Hogan. Savage hits him with a chair, but Giant choke slams him. Hogan and Sting send Giant flying to the outside with a chair. On to Saturday night on the 25th. Mark Starr upset Disco Inferno by roll-up. Inferno no sold the loss and remain confident in victory in tomorrow's Battle Royal. Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero have another really good match. Benoit ends up kicking out of a top rope sunset flip before putting his foot on the ropes for the pin. We get a promo from Diamond Dallas Page and the Diamond Doll. Doll says she's agreed to put herself up as a prize in the Page Against Bad match because she obviously means so much to him. We end Saturday night with a promo from Hogan and Sting. Hogan says there is a light at the end of the tunnel and Sting has always been his friend. And he won't ever doubt that again. Hogan says if the title was on the line on Monday, Sting would have been the next world champion. Let me just start out by saying, Hogan, i got nothing against you, man. I don't know where you're coming from. I never dreamed in my wildest dream that you, Hulk Hogan, would ever come knock, knock, knocking at my door looking for me. Never dreamed it. But you know something? I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. 
I can let it slide when you call me a little dog waiting on the front porch. Yeah, a little dog. Let me just get one thing straight right now. Here at World Championship Wrestling, I'm a big dog, buddy. And if you want to check the list that have come and gotten in my face over the years, because like they say, this is where the big dogs play, my list is pretty long, holster. And I ain't going to walk away. I'm going to do the same thing I've done all along. Hulk, as a matter of fact, I'm kind of looking forward to it. Sting, if I could interrupt, I have always contended if it looks like a rat, if it smells like a rat, and if it quacks like a rat, you can rest assured that it is a rat. And Hogan says something doesn't smell right here. I don't think there's any reason why the Hulkster and the Stinger can't get this squared away. If it has to be right here in the ring, then so be it. I'll see you next week. I'm the big dog, remember? And we will start off with our review of WCW World War Three. Rory, you can kick us off with the results. Yep. Johnny B. Bad defeated Diamond Dallas Page to retain the WCW World Television Championship. Big Bubba Rogers defeated Jim Duggan in a taped fist match. Bull Nakano and Akira Hakuto defeated Mayumi Ozaki and QT Suzuki. Kinsuke Sasaki defeated Chris Benoit to retain the WCW US Heavyweight Championship. Lex Luger defeated Randy Savage. Sting defeated Ric Flair. And Randy Savage won the three-ring 60-man battle royal for the vacant WCW World Heavyweight Championship in a match which also featured... Scott Armstrong, Steve Armstrong, Arn Anderson, Johnny B. Bad, Marcus Bagwell, Chris Benoit, Big Train Bart, Bunkhouse Buck, Cobra, Disco Inferno, Jim Duggan, Bobby Eaton, Ric Flair, The Giant, Eddie Guerrero, Hulk Hogan, Mr. JL, Chris Canyon, Brian Nobbs, Kurosawa, Lex Luger, Joey Mags, Meng, Hugh Morris, Max Muscle, Scott Norton, One Man Gang, Paul Laundorf, Diamond Dallas Page, Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker, Brian Pillman, Sergeant Craig Pittman, Lord Stephen Regal, Scotty Riggs, Road Warrior Hawk, Big Bubba Rogers, Jerry Sags, Ricky Santana, Kensuke Sasaki, Shark, Fidel Sierra, Dick Slater, Mark Starr, Stevie Ray, Sting, Dave Sullivan, The Taskmaster, Super Assassin 1, Super Assassin 2, Booker T, Squire David Taylor, Bobby Walker, VK Wall Street, Pez Watley, Mike Winner, Alex Wright, James Earl Wright, The Yeti, and The Zodiac. Bravo. Uh, Chris, what do you think of this show? Well, as I was watching it, I quite enjoyed it. And then we got to the main event, as is, I suppose you could say that by about a lot of WCW pay-per-views. And then after the absolute cluster that was the main event had happened, I was thinking about the show in its entirety. And I actually struggled to remember some of the matches that I'd just watched within the last sort of two and a half to three hours. And I think that really summed it up for me. Some of the earlier matches were great, but the, with the exception of the opener... Most of the good matches on the we'd seen before, and they'd probably been a bit better. So it wasn't very memorable in its... So it was good at the time, but 
afterwards, it was definitely forgettable. Rory? Yes, I think that's a fair comment. Um, it was a WCW pay-per-view. So, with that, you know you're going to get some high highs. You know you're going to get some very low lows. And you're going to get some real what the hell, what the hell. And I think we got all of those in abundance here. Taken on the whole, did I enjoy the show? Yes, I did. But there are some, there are some major caveats. The main event being the ultimate one of all, but um, uh, we'll get to that when, when, when we get to it. But on the whole, did I enjoy the show for two and a half hours viewing? Yes, I did. Just about. Yeah, I'd agree with those sentiments. Um, if you if you take all the match action before the main event into into a separate category, I, I think on the whole that was one of the better WCW shows of the year. Um, in fact, it probably was. Um, and then we got to the main event that. From what I hear was probably, you know, to, to, to put it in context, because we haven't actually explained this bit, three rings in a kind of triangular formation, 60 men, as, as Rory quite, Rory quite brilliantly worked out, uh, read out earlier. And basically they decided to do the main event with TV having three separate kind of video boxes on the TV screen in, with the view that, well, you can watch everything. The problem really was we couldn't really watch anything because it was all so small. Um, and apparently, I'm told, that match only lasted 29 minutes because I thought it lasted the better part of an hour, uh, which isn't a good sign at all. Um, but we'll come to that. But the action, I think, otherwise was pretty good. Um, anyway, we open up with a view of the three rings that they're formed in a triangular formation. Bobby Heenan predicts about three different winners of the Battle Royal. Mean Gene Oakland is joined bizarrely by Hulk Hogan, Savage and Sting. Alright, Tony, Bobby, it is time to fish or cut bait because tonight 60 men are going to be fine for the title of WCW Heavyweight Champion of the World, Macho Man Randy Savage Sting. Hulk Hogan, a lot of people are picking you to regain your title tonight. At its capacity, crowd no exception here in Norfolk. Well, you know something mean, Gene? Out of something bad always comes something good, brother. Because these Hulkamaniacs have stood with me with the training, the prayers, and the vitamins. I took a walk to the dark side, brother. If I would have taken the final step, maybe I wouldn't be here with my two best friends tonight. But, brother, now I know who my friends are, man. And tonight... The dark side of Hulk Hogan, brother, will be no more, brother. The dark side of Hulk Hogan is over, brother. That's a deal. And just like everybody else, man, we're going to burn the dungeon of doom, brother. I will never, ever again question Sting. Macho Man's my friend. Sting has stuck by me since day one. I want to be your friend forever. I don't care what your trip is with Lex Luger. I will always be your friend, Stinger. I'm with it! The Hulkster! Yes! That is WCW! And the black is gone for good! Right, Max? When you're wrong, you're wrong, and I was wrong, and I just want to say I'm sorry. You're the coolest dude in the world. I think we got a little fire going here. Can somebody get this out, Hulk? I get the point. Well, you know something, Mean Gene? Something that's really funny that we've been laughing about in the back is the fact that everybody said the macho man has a legitimate injury, brother. What a joke. The macho man's arm is perfect. That was just a plan. Because between the Stinger, Macho Man, and Hulk Hogan, the WCW title, brother, is going to be with the Hulkamaniacs. 
just like the people. You can hear him, Hulk. Listen to him. You know something, brother? Observe this, brother. This is what we call a rag sheet, brother. They say that Giant is going to win the match. They said Macho Man was hurt. This is like this is like a dinosaur compared to the internet, brother. The internet's got the scoops. We're gonna steal the belt, the Stinger, Macho Man, and Hulk Hogan together. The Macho Man's not hurt. And what are you Hulkamaniacs gonna do when the Stinger, Macho Man, and Hulk Hogan run wild on you guys? What are they gonna do? Hogan says he took a walk to the dark side, but he didn't take the final step. He rips off, rips off the black bandana. The black top reveals and reveals the red and yellow again. Sting sets his vest on fire. That's Hogan's vest, not Sting's. Uh, Sarri said he was wrong and that Hogan is the coolest dude in the world. Hogan then says that rumours about Sarri's injury were false. Hogan then says, observe this. This is what we call a rag sheet, while holding presumably what is a copy of the Wrestling Observer. Uh, in the meantime, Sting attempts to put out what looks to be a very genuine fire that kind of happened in the bin in front of him uh, that's getting out of control. Uh, Roy, this was bizarre on uh, about three different levels. <laughs> Where to begin with this? Um, uh, <laughs> I'm never the world's biggest fan of inverted commas shoots on wrestling television they can work if they're played directly into an existing storyline and used as an extra buffer um lawrence taylor and scott bigelow this year being a prime example but this was just there for the sake of it i mean why bring the Wrestling Observer... Okay, they didn't mention it, but that's obviously what they were talking about. Why mention that in a professional wrestling show? Why would Hulk Hogan, the ultimate larger-than-life character, even know what an inverted commas rag sheet is? And it seems his his grievance was they were talking about Savage's injury. I just don't know why, be it legitimate or not, I don't know why that would why that would concern him as a character, let alone as a as an inverted commas real person. I mean, it, I mean, I'm guessing here, but I presume this is Hogan and I would imagine Bischoff as well. This is just a collection of various grievances they might have had against the Observer and they've chosen to make their point in this way. If you have a problem with the Observer, talk about it backstage. Don't, don't do it on television and sure, sure as hell, don't do it on a pay-per-view two minutes into the beginning. And that was some fire as well, by the way. Sting struggled to put that one out. <laughs> Chris. But yes, it just took me out of the moment straight away. It wasn't a good start. Chris. I agree with everything Rory said. It was just downright bizarre, um, to, to be frank. And you have to think that more people would be aware of the Observer after this sort of shoot interview yeah. than before. It was just, I didn't understand the point. I didn't understand the meaning behind it. It was a waste of time. And to do it in a view, it had been on TV, but on a paper, it's just crazy. Like, this never approved this to, to be the opening to the pay per view. I don't know what they were on, but it was just just ridiculous. Yeah, um, I, I don't know what you gain by mentioning this. I, I think the one two percent of people, if that, that have understand this reference, I don't think it's worth it. Um, and yeah, you know, like he's saying all these rumors about, you know, the giant winning the match. It's like, 
it's it's less about calling out the observer it's more about reminding people that wrestling's fake which is yeah. like a, a little bit of a bizarre move and then yeah so sting grabs hogan's dark vest throws it onto the thing they have some pyro set up to set the thing on on fire in inverted commas um and basically obviously it's like it's pyro but the actual vest sets on fire and you can see genuine smoke and basically sting at one point just walks across hogan while he's mid promo grabs it like a bottle of water and just like dumps it on the top which doesn't even make any difference at all they do eventually put it out um but chris just a very very bizarre opening segment yeah, it was even before they started talking about the observer. The, the uh, sudden switch with Hogan uh, just sort of ending his time with the dark side without reason, really. He just said it was a bit of. A, he said he was like swerving the dungeon of doom and things like that. But uh, it, it just seemed completely random in its entirety, let yeah. alone the uh, fire and the burning of the observer. <laughs> Yeah, one of the more op- noteworthy opening few minutes of a, of a pay-per-view this year, I'll say that. But, yeah, Rory, I mean, we will discuss it, I think, a little bit later on. But, um, I, I, and I kind of referenced it when I, when I wrote out the news in the sense that I get the feeling there were other plans when they decided that Hogan was kind of going to veer towards the dark side. But I don't know that the best way out of it was just to him just to abruptly kind of turn for, well, not literally turn face, turn about face. And all of a sudden now he's red and yellow again. Yeah, I think they've clearly panicked a bit here. Um, I know we mentioned in the news that they thought he was going to take some time off, and now he's not going to take some time off. They've they, they, they've hit the reset button here, possibly a bit too quickly. I think there might have been a bit more mileage in Dark Side Hogan. Hopefully, not in waggling a sword around again. No, nobody needs to see that more than once. But they could have gone a bit further with this. But I, I'll use that word again. They panicked here, and they've written it off too quickly. That's not to say I think Dark Side Hogan was a roaring success necessarily, but they abruptly ended it, and it's made them look a little bit foolish. I think it was it was a mistake to end it so quickly. Yeah, I I think they went into it with the hope that he could just disappear for a while and then in yeah. a few months time he could just return as if nothing had happened and then once they made the decision that he wasn't going to disappear they just didn't really have a good way out of it I mean there's a promo with, with Hogan and Sting I think on Saturday night the night before the pay-per-view uh, oh by the way there was no main event if you wonder why we didn't cover that there wasn't one um, but on the Saturday night before the pay-per-view Hogan's with Sting and he was effectively kind of back as a baby face there at that point even though he was still dressed in black and basically Hogan said that working with Sting to help fight off the Dungeon of Doom on Nitro was the turning point and he realised that Sting had his back and that, you know, he shouldn't ever doubt that again and, and, and Savage likewise. It didn't really make sense, but that was kind of the story they, what they were trying to tell. But anyway, we will move on. We get a video package previewing Johnny Bad against Diamond Dallas Page with the Diamond Doll putting herself up as a prize for the winner. Page comes out and shoots off Bad's confetti gun. It's Diamond Dallas Page with the Diamond Doll versus John B. Bad for the WCW TV title. The action quickly spills to the floor and both men waste little time getting at it. Bad drives Page's head into the ring post and then hits Samoan drop. Dallas fights out of a long sleeper and takes down Bad by his hair. Bad then returns the favour and ref admonishes him. Page tumbles to the outside and Bad hits a slingshot crossbody. Page then uses the doll as a human shield for pushing into Bad and hitting him. 
Bad goes for a head scissors, but Page counters into a reverse pancake. Bad catches Page going for a kick, spins him around, but Page leathers him with the right hand. Page charges Bad in the corner. Bad moves and Page nails his shoulder into the ring post. Bad hits an atomic drop. The doll had quite a smile on the face at that. We get the lead catch reversal spot from earlier, but this time Bad ducks Page's right hand and levels him. Bad calls for a 10 from the doll, who obliges. Bad hits a sloppy powerball and Page kicks out, which gets some booze. Dallas goes for a pin using the ropes, but Bad kicks out. Page hits a spinning side slam for a two. The pair exchange pin falls, then Bad nails the head scissors. Bad goes for a twisting senton, but Page gets his knees up. Page goes for a gut buster, but doesn't quite seem to get Bad up for it. Bad then hits a tombstone pile driver. Page kicks out. Bad then leathers Page with the right to the outside before hitting a somersault plancher on the floor. Bad hits a slingshot leg, slingshot leg drop back into the ring and pins Page for the three. The doll looks a bit shocked. Doll gets in the ring and hugs Bad, but she looks reluctant. Chris? I thought this was fantastic and it far exceeded the expectations I had of it going in. It was an excellent pay-per-view opener. It clicked pretty much in exactly every way you could hope for and the crowd were really into it they they were really behind Johnny Bad throughout and DDP got some great heel heat throughout especially the spot where he's hiding behind uh, the Diamond Doll I really enjoyed like D- even DDP's in-ring trash talking like always worth a smile made me laugh throughout and it was just a a, a, a loud crowd that popped for everything and it was a really really fun opening to a pay-per-view Rory Yep, totally agree. This was this this is how you open a pay-per-view. Uh, a fiery baby face against a, a cocky heel. Classic, classic booking, and they both pulled it off fantastically. Uh, this is the third pay-per-view match in a row now, which Bad has opened the show, and he's he's really, really gone for it. He has taken that ball. He's run with it. I'm I'm very much a fan of his in the ring. He's a good brawler, as you would expect, given his legitimate background. He's a good. Matt Wrestler come technician. As I, I also think he proved that in the match against Eddie Guerrero on Nitro a couple of weeks ago. He is, as we know, an excellent high flyer. His only problem is his character is just just screams mid card to me. I mean, I think he, if anyone's due a repackage at some point or a tweak, it's him. Uh, but I'm a huge fan of his in the ring. And Page has really, really upped his game in the last three months. I think his general move set is still a bit on the basic side but all credit to him he gets or is getting the absolute most out of it he you know he's not dogging it in the ring he is giving it 100% every single time and that's all i ask that really is all i ask there were some great little moments there just simple storytelling at its best him as uh, as been mentioned by chris um, lurking behind the diamond dolben hitting a sucker punch um diamond doll gave uh, bad a 10 in the match at Halloween Havoc. So what did you do today? Give us him a 10 plus. Simple stuff, but compelling and always watchable. The action was excellent. Some of the reversals they managed to pull off really well. The babyface in the end goes over clean in the middle of the ring in the opening match. The crowd were right behind them. This was excellent stuff. I really enjoyed this match. Yeah. Thanks to everybody involved. Yeah, three for three on that. I mean... These two wrestled last month on the opener, and I remarked on how good I thought that much was. I think this was probably a little bit better. Um, it just kind of goes to show what happens when you've got two guys with with well-developed characters. They've done a ton of work on on the Dallas Page character this year, like yeah, WCW Saturday Night. I'd say he's been involved in probably 
between you know 40 and 50 percent of all of the kind of outs- outside filming angles that they do on WCW Saturday night just to really kind of help give that character some depth um, and that's they're really paying off with that in terms of uh, how the crowd are responding and bad is is a bit of a is a bit of a flat baby face, but he, he's he's at least good enough. Uh, I'd agree with Roy that I think if they're going to get him much higher up the card, they're going to have to, I wouldn't say repackage him, but I think they're certainly going to have to tweak it a bit, uh, make it a bit less cartoony, a bit less Little Richard, a bit less, you know, pop starry type thing, and a bit more kind of serious wrestler. Um, but their chemistry's really good, the action's really good. Um, yeah, it, it, it's very difficult to fault this, and we're going to come on to matches later in the show um, that I think a lot of people would argue were better wrestling matches that didn't get half the reaction that this match did. And you know, it's it's difficult for for, for Benoit, who's you know it may be Canadian but hasn't really featured on WCW television much, and and Kanzuki Sasaki making you know only his second appearance as well. It's difficult for them guys to get a reaction, but this is prove what what can happen when you do um and chris one thing happened that i wasn't particularly expecting certainly last month um they've at least for the short term sided the doll with john to be bad uh they're talking about potentially bringing in woman from from ecw kevin sullivan's real life uh, wife uh into manage dallas page uh i i don't know about the, the, the doll and the john be bad combination and judging by what happened on nitro the following night i'm not particularly sure wcw do either no, uh, I, I have to just assume that this sort of angle with the doll being paired with Johnny B. Bad is more to do with a storyline between herself and DDP than it has anything to do with any plans they had with actually pairing these two together in anything other than the very short term. It's hard to imagine that was the, the main reason they'd have done it is to add another layer to DDP's character and another sort of storyline for him to run with as the relationship between him and the Diamond Doll sort of continues to break down in that in that aspect. Roy? Yes, um, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, I did like when, at the end of the match, when you know Diamond Doll went with Bad, she didn't just do the cliche of, say, just jumping into his arms, as you, put in, as you said in your report. That reluctance was there, which gives you a kind of an extra bridge to build from storyline. I'm not entirely sure... Where else they can go with it? I mean, I mean, I'm with Chris on this. It's in that particular storyline, Bad is playing third wheel between the doll and Page here. I hope they know where they're going with it. It certainly worked for what they tried to do at the pay per view. Let's wait and see. Let's wait and see. <clears throat> yeah, it, it all seemed a bit weird, just in the sense that Diamond Doll put herself up in that position. I think it would have made more sense if. Diamond Dallas Page would have volunteered her up yes. uh, in the sense saying, you know, I'm going to put you on the line. This is how much I think I'm going to win. I don't know why the doll, if they're trying to present her as quite a smart character, and they... Ugh, well, I, I don't want to debate it's too long. I don't know whether they are, long story short, but I, I think if you're going to try and have doll be a reluctant, kind of confused partner of John B. Bad, I wouldn't have had her confidently on Saturday night the day before saying, yeah, I put myself up on for this. I want Dallas to show how much um, I mean to him. And it's like, okay, but we, we've got history with Paige losing big matches. You shouldn't be surprised if he does. 
Um, yes. but we'll, we'll, we will see about that. Anyway, uh, me and Gene Oakland is on the stage shooting a story about the WWF steroid trial from the New York Post. We, we, we did briefly recap that in the WWF part of volume one. He's also claiming it as a WCW exclusive. I'm not sure how you can claim a New York Post story as an exclusive. Uh, he then interviews, uh, Jeremy Bad. Bad tells the doll to do what she wants to do most in life. She says she will consider his offer, but congratulates Bad and says the better man won. Now we move on next to Big Bubba versus Hacksaw Jim Duggan in a taped fist match. Duggan runs out during Bubba's entrance. He hits has a two by four around his neck on a rope. Duggan sets to hit Bubba with the board but relents. They head to the outside and the action spills to the top left ring which gets a pop. Duggan holds Bubba's head between two ring posts which is a unique spot. Meanwhile, on commentary, Tony Schiavone suggests fans between the rings have a bird's eye view. I don't think that's how that works, Tony. Uh, Bubba levels Duggan with a right hand on the outside, on the apron. Bubba chokes Duggan using his foot. We then get into the top right-hand ring. Bubba hits an impressive enziguri. Bubba pulls out some more tape and takes Duggan to the top rope and starts slugging him with rights. Bubba then runs at Duggan and runs to a soft, outstretched right. The referee untangles him from the rope and Duggan sends Bubba flying to the outside. Duggan body slams Bubba, then sets for his three-point stance and levels Bubba with a shoulder tackle. We cut to the other way and out comes VK Wall Street. Duggan levels in with his 2 by 4 Bubba nails Duggan with the chain that Wall Street threw at him. Bubba barely gets to his feet. Duggan can't and it's award cannot and it's awarded as a knockout. Rory. Oh dear. <laughs> uh, I tried to make some notes for this match, but I couldn't really get past writing any more than why is Hacksaw Jim Duggan <laughs> in 90, I just in nineteen ninety five, he just he's got nothing really to offer. I mean he's 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 one of Hogan's buddies, comes down to the ring, shouts ho, shouts USA, waves a two by four around. Uh, if there's anybody who the business has passed by, it's him. Uh, uh, to say I'm not a fan is putting it mildly, as you might have guessed. Bubba has proved in the past, in his many various guises, that he is a, a good big man, I think. He's had, he's had some fine, fine matches in the past. He didn't really get the opportunity to do that here, though, although his insecurity was very nice. This was... I suppose it fit into the gimmick of the match, tape fist, I understand that, but this was little more than 10 minutes of walking around and punching until Wall Street came out and mercifully put an end to this. Oh, I wasn't a fan. In fact, probably the most entertained I was about this match was indeed when Shibani clearly didn't understand what the phrase bird's eye view meant. I allowed myself a bit of a laugh at that, but I wasn't smiling much throughout this match. It was about 10 minutes and it felt a lot longer than that, I'm afraid. Um, move on. <laughs> Chris, move on. I, I just, I, I perfectly agree with everything you just said and I, I have no idea why this match needed to be as long as it was. It felt like it went on for an age and it was, it was probably, if anything, it was just a little bit shorter than the opening match, but it probably felt twice as long. It was terrible and one thing that really, really winds me up is when commentary teams just don't, like, as soon as the men entered the, the second and third ring, uh, they began discussing whether the ref should be counting them out or not, and they just both summed up that they, they didn't know. It was like, know your own rules, like, it's so basic, that kind of thing, and this, it was just a horrible match, really. There was like, nothing happened apart from the enziguri, and then there was the finish, it was, as Rory said, 10 minutes of walking around and punching with little or no impact either way. I, I thought it was, I thought it was horrible, frankly. 
Well, call me a sucker. I thought this was all right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you've got to enjoy a, a, a very realistic style of fight to enjoy or at least like this this type of match. It was a tape fist match, so it was probably even more of a, a stand-up brawl type match than these two would have had anyway. Um, but no, I, I didn't think it was that bad. You know, it, it, there was the interplay between the rings that I thought was quite nice. Um, Rory, you talk about Doug, and I think the one reason he's, he, he's on this, still on, on, on television is that for whatever, however outdated you want to call his tactics, he can still get a reaction, which, which is something. Um, the action was decent. Yeah, it, it, it's a style of wrestling that I enjoy probably more than most people. Um, watching the show uh and it did go a bit too long i don't think i can deny that either but it was it was all right i thought um yeah i, I don't think there's much more to say again I, I think it's the kind of thing if you like stand-up brawl type matches this was all right if you don't you probably didn't like this i think that's probably the uh the best way of summing up anyway it means you know he's on the stage area of rick flair flair says his master plan culminates tonight in the main event and once again the nature boy will rule wcw and we move on it's cutie suzuki and mainumi azaki versus bull nakano and akira hokuto with sunny ono nakano and hokuto come hard out the gate leveling azaki nakano starts throwing her around the ring by her hair Hokuto locks in an abdominal stretch on Ozaki by her partner Suzuki, just out of reach. Nakano tags in and the taunting continues. Even with the ref dealing with Hokuto, Suzuki cannot get Ozaki off of Nakano, who basically just no-sells their weak-looking offense. Ozaki hits a DDT and finally tags in Suzuki. Suzuki locks in a single-leg crowd on Hokuto, and Ozaki locks in while on Nakano for good measure. Suzuki reapplies the crab on Hokuto, but Nakano breaks it up and tags herself in. Suzuki charges at Nakano, who moves, and Suzuki dropkicks Ozaki to the outside. Nakano misses a moonsault, then Ozaki and Suzuki take it in turns, hitting four top rope double stomps on Nakano, who still kicks out. Nakano hits a double suplex. Hokuto misses a top rope crossbody. Ozaki and Suzuki set for a top rope double superplex, but Nakano pulls them off. The faces do a double hurricane rana, Nakano and Hokuto, but they kick out. Ozaki hits a bridging suplex, Hokuto, Hokuto kicks out. Hokuto returns a favour and drops Ozaki right on her head. Hokuto hits a double drop kick from the top, and does a flip dive again from the top to the outside, taking both Hosuki and Ozaki out. Nakano puts Ozaki in an electric chair. Hokuto spears her and she lands on her head. The pin hit is broken up. Nakano gets up to the top, hits a trot like drop on Ozaki and picks up the win. Chris? I thought this was brilliant. I really, really enjoyed it. And it speaks volumes how, to the extent, the cra- how dead the crowd were when these four made their entrance because they probably had no idea who who they were, basically. And by the end, the crowd were really into it. And I think that's a reflection of a great match. And there was a lot of uh, double teaming, but there was a few that's, Maybe a bit overkill at times where potentially it could lead to a, a DQ and with it like, well, it should lead to a DQ if it happens to this extent, but it didn't. I, I don't think it took too much away. I think that's me being a bit picky. There were some really cool spots in this match. The double foot stomp from the top four times with, uh, I think it was Suzuki and Ozaki both doing it twice. That was, that was really, really good. And even little things at the end with the hills where, uh, Bornakano was, uh, doing the, the uh, pin, uh, Hakuto held up 
the, her opponent to to watch the free count happen, little things like that. I thought it was uh, wonderful, quite frankly. And it was the uh, Nakano and Hakuto, the same two women we saw earlier this year on the Collision in Korea show. And this match was just as good as the same uh, tag, uh, the, the tag match we saw on that show. I thought it was great. Rory? Yep. Um, like most of the crowd, I came into this match pretty much virtually completely blind. I was aware a bit of Ball Nakano in her what a manoeuvre fest against uh, Alondra Blaze at SummerSlam 94. But uh, otherwise, I, I came into this with um, no real expectations. But this was terrific, I thought. They only had nine minutes. They packed so much in. They got themselves over with the crowd by their ring work. And as simple as it sounds, how refreshing that is. I thought Nakano and Hakuto played some, some vicious heels at times. I mean, that's a great way to get the crowd into it. Things like... Um, holding out uh, Azaki's hand to tag her partner, then pulling it away, a double hand bite, things like that. I mean, that is a great way to try and get the crowd on their opponent's side. And therefore, when um, Azaki and Suzuki came in and they managed to work their way into that uh, double Boston crab, the crowd popped big. You know, they, they built some real sympathy on the baby faces. It's just terrific old school stuff. I mean, some of the work in this was exemplary. Hakuto, in particular, really impressed me. A half Nelson dragon suplex up. Vicious German suplex. The credit to Azaki, she took right on her head. Just sick, but all the credit in the world for taking that. The leg drop to win at the end was fantastic. I think they probably could have used a little bit more time. The babyface comeback, there was probably a bit more in there. There were, as you mentioned in the report, Bob, a couple of sloppy moments, but I think we can forgive them that. Uh, I thought this was great. A superb showcase of what they can do, and it left me wanting to dig out more, which was, I think, the point of the exercise. Great stuff. On first viewing, I didn't like this. Um, but I'm glad I went back and watched it again. I- I'll tell you why I didn't, I-, I didn't like it first up, and it's not to say the second viewing completely turned me around on the match, but... And again, it, it kind of speaks a little bit to, to what we covered in the match before, in the sense that I, I'm I, I quite like wrestling looking like a looking like a fight. I like to be able to believe what I'm seeing is is even though it's clearly staged maneuvers and and you know strikes, I like to I like to believe it's real, and I like wrestlers to sell it like it's real. Um, and I think the biggest weakness in this match, um, and this and this stood pretty well even on second viewing but I, I think I, I got chance to properly admire the match for, for its positives but the biggest weakness of this match was just the 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 lack of selling and the choreography that made it look like they were almost performing a dance routine mm-hmm. at times I think particularly the baby faces occasionally were oh we've just been hit by a big move but I've got to get up and go over there because I've got to take the next one and it's like yeah that's not really how this works um but and and, and that still stands for a point but again on, on second view I, I soften my opinion on that you, you cannot deny one that the action was fantastic at times uh, really very good. I, Paul Nakano's never looked this strong in the WWF. Um, I don't know whether it's just because they'd never let her or because they want to make Alundra Blaze look strong. Um, <laughs> but if they'd have let Nakano come out and wrestle this kind of physicality against Alundra Blaze, I think those matches would have done even better than they did. Um, and yeah, some of the 
some of the moves later on, I mean, you know, WCW doesn't really, I think this is probably the first women's match we've done on a WCW show, assuming you ignore the Collision in Korea um, event. Um, and this, uh, as you say, Roy, this would have been the first time that the audience would have been exposed to women's wrestling and Japanese women's wrestling, and, and these four characters in particular. Um, they went from being dead to being really into the match inside about 10 minutes. Uh, and, and Chris, I mean, uh, you, you can't come back on, on those kind of criticisms I had as well, but I think when an audience gets into it as much as they did over that short space of time, I think you've got to say job well done. Yeah, absolutely. That is probably the ultimate compliment that you could pay these four women off the back of this sort of nine to ten minute match. I think the lack of selling and the way you said it felt quite choreographed. I think it's probably another reflection, as Rory said, could have done with a bit more time and maybe had it given say an extra five minutes. Maybe five minutes from the uh, Jim Duggan match. I wouldn't have minded that. If it had five minutes from that, maybe you would have had a bit more of that and it would have felt more like a, a wrestling match rather than a dance. But it didn't take away from my enjoyment of the spectacle at the very least. Rory? Yeah, I thought it was just fantastic action. Um, it, def- it definitely needed to be longer. They had less than 10 minutes and they were cramming a lot in there. Um, just thinking about it now, one thing that did annoy me ever so slightly was on commentary. It was uh, Mike Tanay, who I like as a commentator. I think he actually said twice, this match is a big deal in Japan. The subtext being, it ain't a big deal anywhere else. I, <laughs> I don't really think it needed that. And uh, I'm... I'm I wish Tanae would actually do more commentary, having said that. I'm, I wonder how he feels about just being roped into matches in which there are going to be a lot of moves that Tony Schiavone doesn't know. I wonder if him uh. and Jim Ross exchange notes. Because um, <laughs> Jim Ross is, is the third wheel, and there's the great line on the Survivor Series where, because Survivor Series has a a four-on-four women's match that, well, includes yes. uh, Alundra Blaze and Bertha Faye and, and, and six Japanese women. And the match starts and Vince goes, right, over to you, JR, because Vince is like, I, I ain't calling this. Um, although, admittedly, Vince does call a, a Japanese tag match on, on the Raw the following night and actually doesn't do as bad a job as you might think, but I, I, I'm sidetracking myself. Uh, but yeah, I'd agree on tonight. Uh, I think he did a good job. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the subtext of this match is a big deal in Japan is is a, a, a way of trying to undercut it. I think it's a oh, no. it's a way of trying to build it up. As in, you know, yes, we, I, I, we yeah, haven't I, I, given it much build here, but there are a lot of people in Japan watching this match because it's four of their women representing them on a on a worldwide stage. I think that was what well, I think that's how it came across. I think I think I think it's fair to interpret it that way. Don't get me wrong. Maybe it's just me being um uh, maybe I was being a bit over cynical after the previous match, perhaps. But um. Again, I'm, 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 it's almost like I'm nitpicking here. I thought this was, I thought this was a terrific match, and like I say, it's got me wanting to uh, search out more Japanese women's wrestling. Excellent stuff again. We join Jimmy Hart and Lex Luger on the stage at Oakland. Luger looks chiselled, then Hart no sells a high five attempt from Luger. Luger is cutting a script, uh, cutting a promo, uh, Chris, by basically just reading off a teleprompter as he looked down the entire time. They, they didn't even try and disguise it. While Jimmy Hart was talking, he's looking around, he's posing, he's taking it all in. And then the second he starts speaking, it's just eyes <laughs> straight focused on where I assume is sort of, yeah, the script directly underneath the camera and he doesn't divert them once. He doesn't even attempt to. It's, it's quite, it was, it was almost comical. It was like you'd see something, this was like something you'd see a comedy character do. And sort of like parody, a parody of a promo almost. I thought it was laughable. 
Rory, does Luger being able to deliver a scripted promo uh, very smoothly make up for the fact it's scripted and not Luger trying to remember lines? Yeah, if you make it as obvious as that, I don't really think you can try and explain it. Um, it's not as if the scripted promo he said, there was. it's not as if he was bashing out anything in iambic pentameter. It was basically, I'm going to go out there and win the World War Three match. I mean, Luke has been cutting promos for what now? Uh, uh, Ten years? He, sh- he should be able to handle that. It was only about 30, 45 seconds long. But if he absolutely has to have cue cards, give him cue cards. Just put them behind the camera. Don't have what looked like, well, what I would imagine was small strips of paper put on the bottom of the stage that he was clearly reading. It, 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 look, it looks stupid, and it did him absolutely no favours whatsoever. Or the other option, just put him in sunglasses. Um, he's a heel, so it'll probably make sense. But if you put him in mirrors... Well, that's, so- that's why, that's why uh, Bret Hart wears sunglasses, of course, because uh, he couldn't control his eyes during his early promos in the mid-80s, so they gave him sunglasses, and uh, he became quite a big deal. Ah, and, uh, and Bret these days is decent when it comes to promos. I don't, I don't think he wears sunnies anymore. Uh, anyway, we, we move on. It's Chris Benoit versus Kensuke Sasaki with Sonny Ono for the WCW United States title. Just to fill people in, Sting went on a tour of Japan and lost the US title to Sasaki. I'm assuming Sting will win it back at Starco next month, but for the moment at least, uh, Sasaki is champion going into this match. We start with an exchange of a snapware, uh, snapware takedowns. Benoit takes control with some ground submissions. Benoit locks in a double arm submission, slowly wearing down Sasaki. Sasaki fights out with some kicks and hits an effortless body slam and another. Sasaki pits Benoit over his head and drops him on the outside. Uh, on the outside rather. Benoit does a fast tope taking Sasaki down but nearly collides with the guardrail. The crowd dead silent. Sasaki hits a lovely power slam for a two count. On commentary Ono says that after being kicked off the pro he and he didn't have worked out a deal ahead of Starcade. Benoit hits two German suplexes. Sasaki sets for a tombstone pile driver. Benoit counters into his own, but cannot get the three. Oh no, he doesn't try and pin him, sorry. Uh, Benoit goes to the top, hits a diving headbutt, but cannot make the cover as he's selling the impact. Sasaki kicks out. Sasaki hits an impressive one-arm powerbomb, then goes to work on Benoit's arm and scurries to the ropes. Sasaki hits an impressive brain buster for the win. Rory. Well, I'm delighted that we're seeing Chris Benoit in a, in a mainstream North American promotion. If anybody deserves to be there, it's him. I think he's a absolutely sensational worker. And um, it's like we talked about in the news. It sounds like they're getting behind him as well, and quite rightly so. Haven't seen a massive amount of Sasaki, I must say, but the bits I've seen, I've been impressed by. This was two excellent wrestlers wrestling excellently but it didn't quite click as an excellent wrestling match. And I think the lack of crowd response did hurt them. They didn't quite know how to take things up and riff into another gear. They were going to stick with their plan no matter what. A very good plan it was, don't get me wrong. I mean, from start to end, the work was exemplary, absolutely exemplary. But it almost felt like I was watching a training match between them, as if they had a spare 10 minutes at the end of a gym session, went into the nearby ring, and tried a few things out. Ah, Sasaki being US champion and the crowd not even seeing him win the title probably took them out of it a bit. Coupled with the fact that Benoit is still a relative newcomer. Okay, they're trying to get some uh, work, some residual heat by him being in the horseman, which I think is a good move, him being there, by the way. But I don't think the crowd have quite bought into that yet. Uh, so I was very, very impressed indeed by the, by the work. I was always going to be. Ah, but I do think they're capable 
of better with a hotter crowd. Again, a bit more time, possibly a bit more riding on it. Also, while I'm here, the finish seemed a little bit out of nowhere as well. Saka hits a clothesline, hits a brain buster, a very, very nice one, as you'd expect, and gets the victory. It just felt it was lacking something from start to finish. Great work. Massive fan of Benoit. Like everything I've seen from Sasaki. Good stuff. But I think they would have gone to the back and felt a little bit disappointed. Chris? No, I completely agree. I, this felt slightly like an exhibition match to me. That's how I'd describe it. And it felt like that. Sort of, they laid the groundwork and it had an excellent sort of opening five, six minutes where it felt like they were laying the groundwork for maybe a 20-minute, 25-minute match with the sort of chain wrestling and uh, wall counts and things like that, and the way they kept standing off from each other. It felt like they were laying the groundwork for something bigger, and then they transitioned very quickly into the the finish of the match and the, the closing sort of moves of the match. And I think, as you said, uh, as Rory said, with the uh, US title chain hands without the crowd seeing it. I think that's probably explains why the crowd were as dead as they were, because this match was definitely, um, it was good, and I enjoyed it, but I didn't expect more, and the crowd was so dead, probably because they're just they were completely taken out of the story of uh, Sasaki holding the US title with it happening that tour of Japan. I'm sure uh, if he's going to be around, like, matches like this, if he's going to be facing Sting at Starcade. Um, this is how you get the crowd more into him as US champion, or sort of not into him, but against him, and get some heel heat on him before that rematch with Sting. So I, I did enjoy it. It was good, but I definitely expected a lot more. So it felt a bit flat for me. Yeah, people who have heard me review um, WCW matches starring Japanese wrestlers in the past will, will have heard this comment before. I think when there's, there was a match with... Uh, great Muta last year, I think against Steve Austin. There was a match with Antonio Inoki last year against um, Lord Stephen Regal. And in both cases, I said, you've got the Japanese wrestler against the heel WCW worker. And the crowd aren't getting into the Japanese wrestler as a babyface, uh, in part because they don't know who they are, but in part also because the Japanese wrestler doesn't seem to make any attempt to emote themselves towards the crowd and I suspect that's, and my knowledge of Japanese wrestling isn't great, but I suspect that's because in Japan you can get over just by working very strong style and not being the heel in the match. I, I think I think you can wow a crowd in Japan. I don't think you wow a crowd so much in, in the US as a babyface anyway. We saw in the previous matches the heels got over. I don't necessarily know that the babyfaces did. Um, and I think that, that struggled they they both struggle with this here, and the fact that there's not a lot on Benoit at the moment. They brought him in. They're they're starting this build with him, and he's clearly very impressive. But they haven't given him. He just hasn't had the time yet to develop himself as a heel. So you're effectively working two completely fresh acts. Um, and as a result, the match, while impressive, just never really got off the ground. The crowd weren't invested. As I made in my notes, the crowd were just silent. Um, and, and the action was as smooth as you like. It was really solid work. Um, you know, I don't think you can fault anything that happened in the match. Um, but in terms of this as a spectacle, you might as well have been watching with, with the mute button on. Um, and that's not a great sign. But equally, I don't think Benoit should be being paired with Suzaki. I think the idea was we, we want to, we, I know why he was. 
because we've got Benoit who's worked in front of worked in Japan before, can presumably speak the basics of the language involved to, to help him communicate the match uh, and will have worked, probably worked with Suzaki before anyway. So I understand the decision to do it. The problem was that it, it, it works as a match, but it didn't work if you were in the crowd. And that was, that was the biggest problem. Um, but I, I, I get it. Um, Suzaki will pres- probably wrestle Sting, I would think, at Starcade or in a rematch of this. Um, I, I think him wrestling Sting would make a lot more sense. I mean, it would make him a heel, but I don't think that would matter. Um, the crowd don't really know who he is. And the crowd are definitely going to get into a Sting match. I think that's probably the... If they are going to go that way, that's probably the best way to do it. Uh, we get a promo on the stage with Taskmaster, the Giant, and Jimmy Hart. The crowd rally be- behind Hogan. Oakland tries to tease Taskmaster with the idea that the Dungeon of Doom may implode. Giant says, Roses are red, violets are blue, I'm going to kick your butt to Kalamazoo. Uh, ooh, whatever. Uh, Tony Schiavone then invites people uh, to look at buying Starcade on Sunday, December the 27th. A graphic then comes on the screen telling us that it's on Sunday, December the 27th. Schiavone then informs us that it's on a Wednesday, which it is. It's Wednesday, December the 27th. Okay. Uh, Sarish then joins Oakland on the stage. Sarish says he's jittery and that despite rumours about his arm, he's a million percent. We get Randy Savage versus Lex Luger with Jimmy Hart. Savage starts out at fast pace, choking Luger on the ropes. Luger throws a clothesline. Savage ducks. Savage then nails Luger with one. Savage locks in a Boston Crab. Luger escapes and the action spills to the outside. Savage rams Luger's head off of the guardrail. Savage hits the top rope elbow, but Jimmy Hart has the referee distracted. On the outside, Luger locks in the torture rack on Savage. Savage collapses. Back in the ring, Luger locks in an arm submission. Savage passes out and loses the match. Out runs Sting. Sting gets in Luger's face and talks him out of the submission in the, the flip side of the, the, the Sting uh, figure, uh, figure four, the Sting uh, Scorpion Deathlock. Uh, angle on Nitro. Chris, what do you think of this? It just makes the opening of the show even more bizarre. After Hogan opens the show, burning the Observer, and Matt, Randy Savage says he's good to go, he's a million percent. Commentary and Mean G, they, they immediately start talking about his bad arm. It's heavily taped. The match was clearly built around him not having to take much punishment to that arm. And it was it was just strange. It, it had me confused from the get go when I saw how badly his arm was taped. It was just I was thinking about the opening of the show, and then he had Luger beat within about two and a half three minutes after he hit the elbow, and it's like just just strange, really surreal. And the ending was even more surreal when you take into account what's going to happen later on in the night. And I I was just confused, and I was a bit too bewildered to really enjoy anything that happened it was it was a fine match it was quite frantic and fast but that's because it only went about five minutes i didn't think it was particularly good to be honest rory uh not good not good at all so savage really is injured then all oh, right okay you do surprise me as chris said why why even do this i mean why have savage get getting the visual pin on Luga after about two and a half minutes anyway. You, you barely even go to that that quickly on Nitro, let alone in a pay-per-view match. But Savage is clearly injured. You know, you, you can see by the way he's moving, he's got serious problems with his arm. Now, that's what I observe, so to speak. And just to rush through this in five minutes, and if you look at it where, into the storylines, maybe he isn't injured. 
Okay, so he's jobbed in five minutes to a Lex Luger armbar. I mean, considering what's coming up next, that ain't a great way to build him. Uh, I haven't really got much to say because very little in this match actually happened. Savage did the savage stuff for the first two, three minutes. So he went for the visual pin. Um, Jimmy Hart distracts. They end up outside. Torture rack, armbar, five minutes. There you go. I've got very, very little to add to this. I suppose, did it put a little bit of extra heat on Luger going into the main event? I suppose it did, but I'm clutching at straws there. And it's a shame because I reckon if, again, I keep, I've said it a lot in this pay-per-view, but it is true, if a, a bit more time and a fully fit Savage, I think he could actually carry a, a tweener come heel Luger to something watchable. But uh, this wasn't it, I'm afraid. It was it was trash. Rory, would it be fair to say Savage lost this match cleanly? I mean, I know he had the he had the elbow drop on Luger, but he didn't pin him, and the ref was distracted. And then we just get on the outside, Luger takes control, locks in a torture act, puts Savage in the ring, puts him in a, an arm lock, and Savage passes out. I mean, it's it's a tainted win, but I don't... I, I, I'd still say that Luger beat him almost fair and square. Uh, yes, he did beat him fair and square. But, and if that's the case, you've been beating somebody who's going to win the world title in an hour um, uh, in a five-minute match, which is not a great look, in my opinion. I say it probably... I think this match did more for Luger than it did for Savage. Yeah, I, I just don't know why they're putting Savage out there. I mean, it, it, he's clearly not—he's clearly not fit enough to wrestle, and yet they're—they're they're putting him out there in these really short matches. It's like Savage and Luger is a big match. Like you're not helping Luger here in this situation, and you're not helping Savage either, really. Um, Luger didn't look great having a clean submission victory over Savage, although I, I guess. Chris, there is at least a setup that Luger, if they want, and, and, and Jimmy Hart as a heel will certainly communicate it like this. Luger has a definite victory over the world champion. I guess there's that. Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to transition into champion Randy Savage against Lex Luger, that that was perfectly logical. But considering the end of the pay per view and all the controversy surrounding the finish of the main event. It doesn't look like they're going to do that. So it just becomes even more bewildering. We move on to Ric Flair against Sting. Flair gets in Sting's face. Sting knocks him down. Flair slides out of the ring and into the second one in the top left. Flair does his strut. Sting follows him in and hits a back body drop. The crowd are all over Sting. Flair fires Sting off of the turnbuckle, but Sting levels him with the right and goes for a ten punch in the corner. He then follows it with a drop kick. Flair legs it across to ring number three in the top right. Out on the R-way, it's Sister Sherry and Conor Robert Parker. Heenan says they look like the top of a wedding cake. Flair tries chopping Savage in the corner, uh, Sting in the corner, sorry. Sting though sells it. Flair takes another barrage and this time retreats into the R-way. Back in the ring, Sting hits a body drop. Flair then retreats back towards the first ring. Sting charges at Flair by the guardrail. Flair moves and Sting collides with it. Heenan says, somebody do something, I could get hurt. Sting knocks Flair down. Flair grabs hold of the ref and then low blows Sting. Heenan calls it a nerve reaction. Parker and Sherry are now watching from the interview stage. Flair starts working on the back of Sting's knee. Flair locks in a figure four, starts slapping Sting in the face that only ignites Sting and the crowd. Sting turns the submission over. Sting gets a backslide for a two. Flair pushes Nick Patrick. Patrick pushes Flair back, which pops the crowd. Flair tries to stop chop Sting, but that doesn't work. Flair retreats. 
Sting body rocks Flair off the top turnbuckle. Flair does his top rope flip. Sting hits a clothesline and goes for another ten punch. Flair stops him at five. Sting hits a superplex on the top, then locks in the Scorpion Deathlock. Flair submits and Sting lets go of the submission. Rory. Ah, uh, so Flair be Sting for the 700,000 millionth time. Put these two in the ring for 15 minutes and they will give you a good match. Make no mistake about it. And this was a good match. They know each other so well. They could ha- they could hit three stars in their sleep. In fact, they probably do. And uh, the only problem I, issue I had with that is, is that I knew exactly what I was going to get. Now, of course, Sting is going to hit about five press slams. Of course, Flair's going to beg off. Of course, Flair's going to threaten to go to the back. Of course, Sting is going to no-sell chops. Of course, Flair will be caught going off the top rope. It was Sting v. Flair, the mixtape, this match, really. <laughs> and they, they rattled through all, all the big three songs in the first 15 minutes. I've got nothing bad to say about this match at all. I like the fact that Sting won completely cleanly with no shenanigans whatsoever. A submission move in the middle of the ring, which should, and I emphasise should, mean that these two don't have to face each other again for a very long time. You notice I didn't say never because, well, this is Sting Flair and they will go back to it at some point, I'm sure. So it was fine. It was probably a sensible choice to have a match which the crowd would be into before a main event in which the crowd clearly had no idea what they were going to get. So I thought the placement on the card was good. The the match itself, again, I repeat, perfectly fine. No problems with what either man did, but we've seen it many, many times before. Let's have something else. Chris? I completely agree with everything Rory said, but myself, personally, I haven't seen too many. I've seen a few Sting Ric Flair matches, but not too many. So perhaps my enjoyment level was slightly greater having seen less Sting Ric Flair matches than the both of you. But I, I really enjoyed this. There's not much more to say, really, than what Rory said. It did feel like a greatest hit sort of uh match basically between the two men and everything you knew would happen did happen um, and the only surprise maybe was just how clean the finish was but that definitive ending to this match as Rory says does suggest that we won't be seeing it for the foreseeable future yeah very entertaining um, uh, uh, as Rory says if you've seen this match a lot you don't need to watch this one um, I, I guess there's a bit of novelty with the three rings and, and, and Flair and Sting play that off as uh, uh, predictably as well as you would imagine um, nothing stand out here nothing special but the crowd were into it the action was good I don't think we can criticise these two for, for, for being able to work a very good match against each other not that I'm saying Rory was um, but yeah I, I would say the more of Flair and Sting you've seen the less you probably enjoyed this match um but if you hadn't been exposed to too much of it i i I think this was arguably probably the best match of the night um i i think i'm some people might say the tag match i probably wouldn't but that's a that's a different story but yeah i I think there's nothing groundbreaking here and I, i would agree with the sentiment that given what came prior to the show with regards to setting up of the four horsemen and the fact that Sting's clearly seems to be their opening target I'm a little surprised we didn't see them involved in this match yeah. pleasantly surprised I guess but it's this was one of those occasions where I might have gone for the the screwy finish just because it made a lot of sense um, and then you could have had Sting beating Flair down the line I guess um, and there's also the thought well where were the horsemen but you know, given WCW's propensities for doing a lot of screwy finishes, I probably shouldn't criticise them when they don't. 
Um, and so for that, I, I, I guess quite a big thumbs up. Hulk Hogan is on stage with me, Gene Oakland. Hogan says in one night he has the chance to prove he is the best in WCW. We now have three broadcast teams for this main event. Quite how this is going to work. Eric Bischoff is with Dustin Rhodes, commentating on ring number two, and Chris Cruz and Larry Zabisco are covering ring number three. And it's... Uh, Roy may have drawn the short earlier, but I, I have at least got him with him. Here we go. It's... Uh-huh. Scott Armstrong, Steve Armstrong, Arn Anderson, Johnny Bad, Marcus Bagwell, Chris Benoit, Big Train Bart, Bunkhouse Buck, Cobra, Disco Inferno, Jim Duggan, Bobby Eaton, Rick Flair, The Giant, Eddie Guerrero, Hulk Hogan, Mr. JL, Chris Canyon, Brian Nobbs, Kurosawa, Lex Luger, Joey Mags, Meng, Hugh Morris, Max Muscle, Scott Norton, One Man Gang, Paul Orndorff, Darren Dallas Page, Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker, Brian Pillman, Sergeant Gray Pittman, Lord Stephen Regal, Scotty Riggs, Rogue Warrior Hawk, Pippa Rogers, Jerry Sags, Ricky Santana, Kensuke Sasaki, Randy Savage, Shark, Fidel Sierra, Dick Slater, Mark Starr, Steve Ray, Sting, Dave Sullivan, The Taskmaster, Super Assassin Number 1, Super Assassin Number 2, Booker T, Dave Taylor, Bobby Walker, VK Wall Street, Pez Watley, Mike Winner, Alex Wright, James R. Wright, The Yeti and The Zodiac in a 60-man three-ring battle royal for the WCW World Heavyweight title. Michael Buffer says there's almost a quarter of a million pounds of muscle in this match, which will bring each participant in at a shade over four thousand pounds in weight, if my maths are correct. Anyway, uh, yes, as, as I mentioned at the top of the part, uh, essentially they decided that they were going to have a commentary team for each ring. Now, obviously, the commentators didn't all commentate at the same time. They kind of flipped between each one. Um, But they did decide that they were going to have three separate video feeds on the screen. So they formed the triangular formation in the same ways that the ring did. It did also mean that it was very hard to see anything that was going on. So I apologise in advance for these... Yeah, this match lasted 29 minutes. It felt a lot longer. But I apologise in advance for these very kind of choppy notes. Um, but there was a lot going on. A lot of it was very hard to follow. Anyway, I think Ric Flair left early. I've got in my notes. Yeti, who was dressed not as Yeti from Halloween Havoc, more as Ninja Yeti, uh, got eliminated and started trying to do some damage from the outside. We then cut to the triangular split screen. Arn Anderson and Sting spilled to the outside. This was another big thing that happened in this match. There is a lot of action going on outside of the three rings involving people still in the match. So even more confusing than you think. Uh, He and Flair start attacking Sting. Giant picks up Scott Norton on the top rope. Flair is now attacking Hogan in ring number one. Bischoff reckons Luger got eliminated, but nobody saw him. In ring number one, a big bunch of guys try and eliminate Hogan. Hogan starts flaying at a bunch of heels, attempting to eliminate him. On the outside, Iron Anderson attempts to pile drive Lex Luger, who backdrops him. Hogan gets dumped onto the apron, but manages to avoid elimination. Sting leaps into Giant's arms, but Giant turns it into a bear hug. Ring two is emptied. Basically, once they got down to ten men in each ring, they then sent them to ring number one. Uh, Lex Luger and Ironson continue their battle on the floor, as do Flair and Sting. We get down to ten men in ring three, so they get sent to ring one as well. The crowd rally behind Hogan. Mercifully, we return to one camera angle. One man gang and the Dungeon of Doom attack Hogan. Scott Armstrong gets taken off on a stretcher. Savage and Luger start brawling in the second ring. Darren Dallas Page and Jordan Bad eliminate each other. We get down to about a dozen. Mr. Wonderful, Hulk Hogan, One Man Gang, Eddie Guerrero, Lex Luger, Randy Savage, The Giant, Hawk, Sting and Iron Anderson. Pillman gets eliminated as do Hawk and Sazaki. Hogan eliminates Mr. Wonderful. Guerrero hits a lovely top rope drop kick to Anderson. 
Furler knocks in a figure four on Guerrero. Anderson spine busters Guerrero, which got a reaction. Guerrero then gets eliminated. Giant chokes down Savage. Flair goes to the top. Sting catapults Anderson into Flair and sends him out. Anderson follows. The crowd pop for that. We're down to Savage, Giant, Luger, Hogan, Sting and one man gang. Luger and Sting start working on Giant together. With Jaeger Hogan, they eliminate Giant. Hogan dumps Luger and Savage out for good measure. Savage eliminates one-man gang while this is all going on. With the camera and the action focus on Hogan, Savage eliminates one-man gang, and they announce Savage as the winner as Hogan gets pulled out from underneath the top uh, underneath the top rope by the giant. The referee dealing with Savage and one-man gang doesn't see this. Uh, we then basically spend the next ten minutes working all this out. I'll come on to that in a minute. Uh, Chris, your thoughts on this match? Well, as well as his massive over overestimation of the weight of the men involved. Uh, Buffer's introduction that was three rings, 60 men, three rings, was a, that cluster pretty much summed up the absolute mess that we saw for the, for the uh, half an hour that followed. It was just, it was absolutely impossible to tell what was going on. And the commentary teams quite often were talking about parts of the action in their respective rings, that the camera for that ring wasn't even anywhere near. So they'd be talking about something that'd be happening in one corner, and we couldn't even see it in our screen for that ring. It was just a mess. I like, I get the idea, 60 men, three rings, like it all sounds quite novel, but it was just terrible. It was, it was just really terrible. It was entirely missable. You could have left the room for 26 minutes and walked back in when there was about eight men left. And you'd have got as much out of it as I did sitting watching it, trying to pick out something. Chris, isn't noteworthy. that true for most battle royals, though? I, I, but at least it's one camera angle and it's all in one ring, and you can kind of focus on something. Even if you picked sort of one, you pick the bottom screen. I'm going to watch this because it's ring one. The commentary teams would keep switching between, and they'd be talking about action that'd be going on in an entirely different ring. It was it was so much more chaotic than a regular battle royal is what I basically took from it, and it was you couldn't pinpoint a single piece of what was going on, even if you wanted to. I, I, the cameras consistently switched from what they were showing you, and there was a time where the ring, for, uh, the camera for ring one and the camera for ring two were actually showing the same thing before the participants had joined the first ring. And it was just a mess. It really was a mess. I'd, and the, like, that's even without taking the finish into account, which might have been like a passable finish, but then to have the next 10 minutes discussing it in the ring about when they were going to watch the video replay. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't have enjoyed this much less, quite frankly. Rory. I think Bischoff put it best uh, on commentary when he said this match is going to be nothing but chaos. Yep, Uncle Eric gets it right again. I mean, what on earth was this? I'm just going to quickly go through the positives. It, it won't take me long. Just as the match was about to begin and the bell was about to ring, they went to the big wide-angle shot from uh, in, in the heavens. You had the lights of the arena at the top, and you had you could see the, all the three rings. The bell rang, then you see everybody muck in. That was a great visual. They didn't think of anything else to do after that fantastic visual. They've got that for video packages for years to come. Not much more from the match, I'm afraid. I did like, and one thing I always like in the Royal Rumble as well, is that you had uh, wrestlers who were feuding 
um, going after each other. I always like to see that. So, for example, as you said, yeah, DDP and Pay, uh, DDP and uh, and Bad are going at it, eliminating each other. Um, Sasaki, Benoit, Hogan, and the Dungeon of Doom. I always like to see that. Another thing I did like, which doesn't happen very often in the Royal Rumble, or they kind of hinted at it this year, was heels going after heels and baby faces going after baby faces. The WWF, particularly in battle royals, they always try to keep it played alongside or contained within heel v face lines. This was everybody going after everybody, probably by accident because they couldn't really see who they were attacking. But, but even so, it really was a case of every man for himself, Jess, in that respect. Otherwise, I'm struggling. Oh, I think we were, everybody was just sat around waiting for the finish. I mean, so many things were missed. They were missed by the camera. I mean, for example, we didn't see Hogan slamming the giant. I think that took place at some point during the match when they were about uh, in the middle ring. I think that took place, but I couldn't really make it out. If you can't see the giant, then you know you've got some serious problems in there. But we did get to see Mark Starr being eliminated, so that's okay for the people who bought the pay-per-view to see if he was going to win. <laughs> it was just impossible to follow. And so it didn't even clear down when everybody got into the main ring. If anything, that made it slightly worse because you had about 40, up to 40 people there who couldn't do anything. The problem is everybody there is much of a muchness. You can barely even walk, let alone do any string together any any manoeuvres. So you're reducing Eddie Guerrero to the like of Shark. They're both doing exactly the same thing, walking around, pushing at people if they can. It was just a ludicrous mess, at least in a standard battle royal, even if it was a 40-man one. It's rarely the main event, and people get eliminated pretty quickly. Here they had half an hour to kill, so you had just so much time of people just walking around, gently nudging each other at the ropes until it was their time to go over. It was... It, it was a very, very difficult watch, and which for a first time main event, which they have hyped very, very highly indeed on a pay per view. Oh, not good. It's as if they had the blueprint of a decent idea. They got it to first draft stage, and then didn't take it any further. It was, it was a hard, hard watch. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I, I don't even think this was a good execution of what they tried to do, um, which, you know, I mean, I guess they'll, they'll look at the buy rate and decide whether they want to do this again. Um, I, I would I would err on the side of caution, but I kind of feel like if you tweak a few different things, you could actually make this a lot better. Um I think for what for what it's worth saying, and, and, and Roy, you alluded to this at the start, apparently as a spectator in the arena, this was significantly better than watching it at home, in part because it was just horrendous yes. watching it at home. But equally, I think if you're in the arena, you can pick your guy and watch them for a bit. You know, you can, you can watch Sting and, yes, and, and Flair going at it. You can watch, you can, you can follow different pockets of action. Whereas there were so, they were trying to tell so many stories on the TV version, you just couldn't get into any of them. Um, and then, you know, there are other things as well. Like I, I don't think I would have cleared down the back two rings when they got to 10. I think there were, you could have had some quite interesting moments as those all three rings kind of whittled down and maybe like have flair like clean house in the second ring in the top left. I think he moved from one ring to another because I don't think he started in number one. But have, have flair in number two and just like eliminate everyone in that one while the other two are still dealing with each other and flair can just work the crowd for four or five minutes just 
just in an empty mm. ring. You know, maybe maybe step out, grab a chair, and just sit in the middle of the, that ring. Like that, that's an idea they could have run with. And then you could have got to the bit where we got to maybe like six guys left, and it's like, okay, who's going to be the last three, and then have bring the last three into the main ring. I feel like that could have improved it. Mm. Um, and then you get to, you know, it's it's impossible to follow as it is. And then you decide, yeah, we'll have a lot of guys brawl on the outside, as if, if that doesn't confuse things already. And, and then also the weird thing that apparently the referees can follow exactly what's going on when we're, we're between like 60 and 5, but Hogan gets eliminated quite clearly through the bottom rope and no frigger sees it. I mean, I know Nick Patrick's dealing with other things, but I'm guessing there were other referees around that should have spotted that. Um... We we come to I guess we'll start with the ending and we'll we'll combine that in with with, with the Savage chat and all of that. Um, Chris, talk talk us through your thoughts on the final six. I say final six, that bit didn't particularly last very long. What did you think of the ending? I didn't mind the actual ending of the match in itself. That wouldn't have been my anyway. It probably wouldn't have made my top five biggest grievances with this match with the ending with Hogan being pulled out and the wrong winner being declared. It was what followed that sort of brought that specific way out of the match down for me with the discussion of it. And Hogan initially sort of demanded that he get a shot at his belt, but then just randomly deciding to compromise and, oh, I'll wait to show you the replay for Nitro tomorrow. Like, I understand they're plugging Nitro and they want people to tune in tomorrow. But that was quite, it was almost, it was pretty pathetic, that ending of a pay-per-view. And then they celebrated together. Like so, the finish of the match, but was far better than the finish to the show. Rory, uh, I didn't like the finish to the match at all. I'm afraid. First off, I mean, you've got the final six. I have no objection to there being a, a surprise person when you get to um, with, with Raw Rumble, the final six or final four. Here they went with the one man gang. Yeah, big name. <laughs> well, the real bizarre uh, thing for One Man Gang was that the the, 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 pre- the premise of this whole thing was three rings, 60 men, and, and as, as Michael Buffer was trying to say, three giants. That was the whole thing. One of the giants was the giant. One of them was the Yeti, who was, you know, dressed, dressed like he was from some Japanese cartoon. And then the third one was meant to be someone else. I think it was meant to be Giant Gonzalez, or the guy who played Giant Gonzalez, in either that gimmick or something else. Now, as we found out last month, he wasn't available. So they brought in One Man Gang. The problem is, is that One Man Gang isn't really any bigger than than Hogan. And let's not say he's not big, but you know he's not a giant in 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 the WCW universe. And so, yeah. And then like One Man Gang, who hasn't featured on WCW television at all, is in the final six. Carry on, Roy. I know. I say. I almost, I almost hate myself for saying this, but it would have made more sense for the Yeti to be in the final six rather than one man gang. Uh, Yeti done up in his, uh, yeah. <laughs> Don't tell anybody I said that, will you? <laughs> there in his, uh, in his Power Ranger garb. But, uh, yeah, I didn't like the ending at all. Um, before the match, you had, when I, and I did like this, you had Shivani and Heenan putting over the lineage of the title, saying it goes back 60 years, the days of, you know, Frank Gotch and George Hackenschmidt and all that. And this is the most prestigious title in sport, I think is what Heenan actually said. So they have that, so the winner of this is going to be the, und- the undisputed champion. So they have the undisputed champion take the belt by close dining out a virtual jobber, which the camera doesn't really see when the other person who's legitimately in the match gets pulled through the bottom rope and hasn't actually been eliminated. That is not a decisive way for to crown any, any 
um, uh, undisputed champion. I suppose that would have made the most sense as it was, was Savage to eliminate Hogan at the end, but <laughs> that, that was never going to happen, as we know. So I suppose this was the, the best inverted commas that, that, that they could do. Um, it was a, it was a poor, poor ending that did the Savage no favours. And just that ridiculous back and forth. <laughs> it did make me laugh, actually. Uh, yes, Sir Hogan saying, yes, I can get you the tape. The child was eliminated. Well, it could be my memory playing tricks, but I seem to remember there being one or two action replays shown during the event. So I'm sure it wouldn't have taken them too long to get a main hey, action got, replay. Got to get the ratings. Got to get them ratings. <laughs> but hey, ch- tune into Nitro, huh? <laughs> and again, it, it, it made it made sense with its own internal logic, but. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll let them off that one because it's all about Nitro, as we know. But um, they, the ending should have been a lot, lot more decisive uh, than it was, and it just capped what was, I'm afraid to say, a bit of a disaster. I, I can understand his frustration at this particular point in time, but Randy Savage, we've got to congratulate you. You are the new WCW World Heavyweight Champion. You're a friend of mine, Hulk Hogan. We've been to hell and back about a dozen times. And I value your opinion. I didn't see nothing, I swear. But I live by what it is. Is what it is. Can you handle that, yes or no? Before I say anything, macho man, I'm going to ask everybody in here. Did I go under the bottom or not? I think that's going to stand up in court. Did you see it? That's just a matter of fact, baby. Did you see? Now what are you going to say, Macho Man? I can't get involved in this, Randy Savage. You should be basking right now in your victory here tonight. Bottom line, this is my dream. I told you that when I came into the WCW. Now, if there's a dark cloud over that, that's not cool. That's not what I'm all about. Well, let me tell you something, brother. There's a dark cloud over that because you didn't go over the top rope, and I didn't go over the top rope. Well, I would have to concur with the comments of both men. Yes, a cloud of controversy. I gotta see the film. You want to see the videotape? I get to see the film. Try tomorrow night on Monday Nitro. Okay, brother, tomorrow night on Monday Nitro, brother, I'll do everything in my power with all these maniacs behind me. What it is is what it is, brother. Yeah, I, I don't... I don't get what what the goal of this, this ending was. I, It's like... Savage is the champion, but... It wasn't like a, it wasn't a great coronation for Savage's first WCW world title. I mean, he talks about it in the promo, like, it's my, been my dream. And it's like, this has had no bills. They haven't, well, you know what I mean? Like, they haven't really talked about Savage potentially winning, and he's a guy that they, they perhaps should have been doing a better job of, uh, of predicting as one of the favourites going into the match. And it's like, of all the stories you could have told, of all the situations that you could have got away with eliminating Hogan in a way that did no damage to him at all, but didn't, that kept him away, like, this was it. Like, 
just have the Dungeon of Doom run out and, and chuck Hogan over the top rope with five men to go. That's your ending. And then, and then Savage can, can win the match decisively. And then you can, Savage can have this big coronation moment. No more controversy. All right. No, no weak hook for Nitro, but I don't know. I don't know that you want to be insulting your audience's intelligence by saying, yeah, we, 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 could, we haven't got the video. We've got time for 10 minutes of chat. We've still got 20 <laughs> minutes left before the pay-per-view can end, but we cannot get this video. We've got, and, and you know the best part of this entire segment? Hogan gets on the mic and says, who thinks they saw me get pulled under the, under the bottom rope? And, and they pan out to a wide angle, and and there's about, 30 people behind Hogan going, no, not me. I didn't see it. Like, it was brilliant. Like, this reaction of guys. <laughs> no, no, he, he, he was out. But I, I just feel like you could have, if you wanted to create some doubt, there was a way of doing it that if Hogan gets dumped over by people not in the match, that's Hogan's out. And then Savage has this big victory, this big coronation, this big celebration. If you want to do it like that, and then you can, and then Hogan comes out and Nitro says, hang on Randy, you know, you didn't eliminate me, nobody eliminated me, I want my rematch, and there's, there's your Starcade main event if you want to go that way. Um, Chris, I, I kind of got to the ending and thought, they've given Savage the title, but it, it, it struck me as the kind of thing where it's like, well we've given the title, but we didn't want to make it a big deal, which to me is quite surprising. It is very surprising, and the other aspect of Savage winning the title is the injury, which he's clearly very, very hurt, and if he's going to be main event in Starcade, which he will be, like, you'd assume he would be off the back of this, then you don't, like, he's he's in no condition to put on a, a pay-per-view level main event, like, and I, I get it, with the promo at the start of the show, this had a feeling, like, the entire sort of ending and Savage winning was just kind of like, are we going to swerve those, like, rag sheet readers? Like, that was basically it. It felt like it was just sort of cheap. Like, they, it didn't feel like, as you said, they'd been building to it particularly. And then with the promo at the start, and then they try to emphasise the fact, no, he's definitely not hurt. So they put the title on him to really hit home. Like, no, he's definitely not hurt. Look, he's fine. He's our champion. It, it just, it, it was sort of, there was a, a hook throughout the whole show of, confusion surrounding Randy Savage and then to have it end with him winning the title just it's just sort of like it just seemed really strange basically Roy Randy Savage is too big a name not to be WCW champion at some point Um, when he joined which was almost exactly a year ago now I knew that they were going to put the title on him at some point and it would make perfect sense to do it I think they having said that I still think they've done it even just regardless of the way it's happened and his injury just happened, I still think they've done it about six months, certainly six months earlier than I thought they was going to, six months earlier than I thought they were going to, maybe six months earlier than they should have. And I still think there was a decent role for Savage in an upper mid-card, help out the younger guy's role, and then build him. Because I have no problem with Savage being the champion. He, he, the guy, when he's fully fit, the guy can still go in the ring. And he's obviously a massive name. I have no problem with him being champion in that respect. I have a lot of problems with becoming the champion like this, however, when he's used as a pawn in some ridiculous game, which WCW have cooked up between them and the Rustling Observer newsletter, when he loses in five minutes to Lex Luger, 
when he does virtually next to nothing in the Battle Royal main event. Well, although he might have done something, I couldn't really see. <laughs> I don't think he did anything in the match anyway, certainly not <laughs> until the very end. And then he's made to look a little bit foolish on the mic by Hogan for 10 minutes until it's time for the pay-per-view to close. Uh, put it this way, it's not a very auspicious start to his title reign. No, um, we might as well discuss it now. I was going to do it kind of after we, we, we wrapped up um, the, the, the show review, but we're on the topic now. Um, Rory, your, your thoughts as, as Savage being the champion? I know we, we kind of covered it, but, but more generally, I mean, is it a... Is it a positive step? I, I don't know that it is, particularly as I, I kind of thought this whole thing was being built up for the Giant to win it. Um, you know, the the 60-man, three rings, three Giants. It's a battle royal, which is kind of, you know, fodder for, for heels winning because it's a cheap way to win a big title. Um, it, it, it's not the wrong guy, but it seems like it's the wrong time. Yeah, totally agree. I'm not party to the inner workings of WCW, thank goodness. I'd go, <laughs> I wouldn't wish that on anybody, really. But it seemed it's set up for the Giant to win. I mean, it's been all about the Giant ever since he came in. Ever since he came in, it's been all about him. And if ever there was a time for him to win it now, this would be it. He wouldn't be... He wins in a battle royal, so... Nobody has to take a particular clean job. It doesn't really hurt anybody to get the title on him. And then there are numerous, numerous possibilities of who you then put him against, some of the people he eliminated, etc., etc. It looked tailor-made for that. But as the Giant was also... I hate that we keep having to go back to this, but because the Giant was also mentioned in the Wrestling Observer in that particular issue, it's as if they've just gone with that just to stick it to Meltzer for whatever reason. And then they put the title on Savage, who I say, at his best, can still very much go in the ring. But you can't go in the ring at the moment. You can barely even move his arm. I just... Uh, it seems, again, like they've made a pretty short-termist decision here. You would presume that you're going to get Hogan Savage at Starcade, but uh, I don't know. Then, I mean... If that does happen, I don't think for one minute that Hogan isn't taking the title there. So then you're just making Savage a real placeholder champion, and he certainly deserves better than that. I mean, I don't see him having... I never saw him having a Hogan-esque lengthy title reign, but you wouldn't want him just holding the belt for a few weeks until Hogan takes it back off him at the biggest pay-per-view of the year. (sighs) Right person, wrong time. I agree completely. Yeah, my, my only doubts over Hogan next month is that we'd have to look, well, not that I've got time to do it, but we'd have to look at, you know, Hogan's dates and how many shows he's done. <laughs> um, because it feels like he's done as many as he did proportionally last year and he didn't work the November show. And I mean, last year was a half the length of time. Um, if, uh, yeah, I don't know if Hogan's going to be on, on Starcade. But, 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 but if they're not going there, where are they going? That's, that's the question, isn't it? Well, <laughs> well, it'd be Savage and the Giant, wouldn't it? One would think. Um, mm, that, they need to start building that quickly. That'd be, well, they, 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 they did do that on the night show. That'd be a real big risk yep. with, with an injured Savage and, and Giant mm. in his fourth match. Fifth, whatever he's wrestling now. That would be a, Chris. You, you could, uh, Potentially make a case for Luger off the back of the match they had here. Not that you want to see that five-minute match again, but just storyline-wise. It'd be real uh, bizarre to go Savage and Luger at Halloween Havoc, four minutes. Savage and Luger at uh, World War Three, four minutes. Savage okay. and Luger at Starcade, 25-minute main event. 
Um, but but I, Chris, I won't ask to Savage a minute, but it's a real risk just asking Savage to main event while he's in this shape. Like, I mean, how, how do you get around that? I don't know. Don't know what you do. I don't know. It seems it's, it's just a bizarre decision, and it definitely like it's the wrong decision, as you say. Like, it's not wrong to put the title on Savage by any means, but to put a title on Savage in this condition, it's just the wrong decision, and it. It just screams of being sort of, yeah, getting one over on the observer, basically. And that, that's not the way you need to be booking your world title. It's, it, it's counterproductive. And now you're left in a position where you presumably, well, Savage will be the champion headed into Starcade. And I'm not sure what kind of condition he's going to be in to put on a main event worthy matchup for that type of show. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that it's it's been difficult for Savage, like it's been difficult for Sting trying to trying to stand out in in Hogan's shadow uh, this year. Um, and I, I think it would have this move would have made sense if Hogan was going to be away for a few months. Uh, I don't know is the answer in short. You know, given that the I mean, the original plan called for him not to be on this show, let alone I, I don't think he's going to be on Starcade either. So I don't know what's quite happened there, but. This move sort of makes sense if Hogan's going away for a while in the sense that you can build up Savage. But I don't think Hogan is going away for a while. We're, we're going to talk through... Well, I'm going to read the review of, of Nitro in a minute and talk through what happened there. Hogan's still very much involved in the story. I'm back in the red and yellow still thinking, you know, I've got, I've got a claim on this championship. I mean, that's pr- surely where they're going. Um, I don't know. It, uh, again, it, it's, it's the right guy. It's just not the right time for me is probably the answer in short to that one uh, we'll come to our overall thoughts on this show and a scoring out of 10 Rory I will start with you uh, as I said at the start there was some good there was some bad and there was some what on earth is this <laughs> but having said that there was very little that was ugly the uh, take this match aside I was my, my even with the myriad issues I had with the main event it almost by accident managed to hold my attention, if only because I wanted to see how on earth this this madness was going to end. Um, and in that respect, I've got to give it some kind of grudging credit, even though the match itself was, like I said earlier, a bit of a disaster. The matches I expected to deliver did deliver, maybe not necessarily in the way I wanted them to, but they did. Um, the rubbish was fairly brief, thank goodness, and... For two and a half hours, I must say, zipped by, even though the main event itself felt a lot longer than half an hour. As bizarre as that sounds, it's absolutely true. If I was taking this purely based on the ring work as a, as a general whole, I'm probably looking at about a five or six. But given the fact that everybody, pretty much everybody, even the lesser workers, did have their working boots on, and you've got the spectacle of the main event, because it did have that, even though it didn't have much else, I'm going to go for a pretty solid and, on the whole, well-deserved 7 out of 10. Chris? I'm not quite as positive as Rory. I really enjoyed the opening match. Um, I thought that was excellent, and for me that was the match of the night, just because the other matches I enjoyed the most, such as Flair Sting and the uh, Japanese women's tag match, I've seen matches involving those competitors that I've enjoyed more in the past, so I weren't quite as high whereas I've really enjoyed this. I thought it was the best match I've seen these two have. And the main event just took so much away from me. It, 
it did only go half an hour, but it felt longer, and the main event felt longer than all the matches I'd enjoyed combined, and it, it in no way was. But for that, I I just can't give this a seven. I think I'm going to be slightly harsh, but I'm going to give this a five out of ten because the main event and how bad it was and how hard it was to pick up on anything that happened within that half an hour, or at least the 29 minutes before the very very end, and even then they missed. Savage eliminating one man gang. So even the end when there's just two men left in the ring, you still miss that on the, uh, with the cameras. So it just knocked off so much for me and it brought my enjoyment down. If it was, if you were to restructure this show and have the, uh, <laughs> the main event go on first and then you had all the good <laughs> matches that followed, then this would probably be a seven out of ten. But to enjoy it and then just to sit there through this absolutely chaotic mess it really took a lot away from me so yeah five out of ten yeah i think if this is a two-hour pay-per-view this is a excellent show this is an eight and a half nine out of ten show in terms of the action up until that point i i I felt was not perfect by any stretch um but was very very good by wcw standards really good there was you know matches that while they weren't all well worked, they all were noteworthy, and none of them were particularly awful, I don't think. Um, but yeah, it, you just can't look past the main event. And, and it's weird, like, I don't necessarily think the main event dragged. It just felt like it was about 50 minutes long. Like, it, 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 you find out it's 29 minutes, and you're like, what? Like, it's not to say that the main event felt like it took an age, although it certainly, you know, probably outstayed its welcome a bit. But but I don't think it, that was the problem. But it's more just the way they executed it and the perplexing booking of the finish. Plus, you know, I mean, you could have had a you could have done everything they did up until the point where Savage and Hogan are in the ring and just restarted it. Like, you know, you could have pulled out the video. You know, you want to pop a rating on Nitro rather than give us a finish. Like, you could have done that. I think that would have been a mistake because I don't know that you want Savage or Hogan eliminating the other. Um, but that's what you could have done to give people a decisive finish. Yeah, I, I think on, on the whole, I'll, I'll give this a 6 out of 10. He's standing by. Take it, Gino. All right, Eric, we're going to try and answer some of those questions for you and our fast television audience tonight on Monday Nitro. Jimmy Hart, the mouth of the South. Kevin Sullivan... Last night, of course, it was World War III, and, and you were a very important part of that. I want to talk to you. You know, I always thought you were a real smart man. I got to ask you a real easy question. If you're so smart, what is Luger doing running around with Sting? Don't you realize that last night, Luger could have changed the course of wrestling history? All he needed was to keep the hold on for 10 more seconds, Jimmy. Wait a minute. And we wouldn't have had no Macho Man as the world champion. We wouldn't have had no Hulk Hogan controversy. Wait a second, Hart. Let me finish. And the other thing we wouldn't have, we would have had either Luger as a champion or someone from the dungeon. Now, gee, Hart, if you're so smart, tell me what's going on. Well, first of all, have I ever lied to you in my life? I'll answer that. No, I haven't. And let me tell you something else. Who was your first manager? Jimmy Hart. Who was the only manager you ever had, baby? Jimmy Hart. 
Lex Luger, man. Lex Luger and Sting. They're friends. They go back a long time the same way me and you do, Kevin Sullivan. And you know that. Let me tell you something, baby. It's going to take a long time to chip away at this, but we're going to get the job done. You understand that? Lex Luger and Jimmy Hart. We have a plan with Sting, baby. Wait wait, wait, wait a minute. You said you and Lex Luger and Sting have... Oh, you know, baby. <laughs> All right. And once again, as there's only one show before, uh, before the, the last show of the month, I didn't bother the pre-tape it, so I'll read you through the final Nitro of the month. We start off with a rematch between Johnny Bad and DDP. Bad is accompanied by the Diamond Doll. Paige comes out carrying a bunch of roses. The roses actually contain a steel chain within them, which consumes the doll when she finds them. Dallas asks her to throw in the chain, which she does, but the throw isn't a great one, and the chain ends up in Bad's hand. Bad nails Paige, wins the match, but is confused about the doll's motives. Taskmaster confronts Jimmy Hart about Luger's involvement with Sting. He says that if Sting hadn't got involved with Luger, Savage wouldn't have made it to the main event, let alone won it. We get a rematch between Hokuto and Nakano against Asaki and Sasaki. After a similar lack of selling, as I've kind of put in my notes, Nakani, uh, Nakano and Hokuto win, but yeah, it's, a, it's a pretty similar match, if slightly shorter. Hogan, back in red and yellow, is taking on Hugh Morris. Morris nails a moonsault. Hogan kicks out, hulks up, and wins. What dark side I've got in my notes. Savage calls himself the only world heavyweight champion and that he's going to go on a reign of terror. Hogan interrupts him, talks us through the tape from the pay-per-view, and it conveniently, the feed cuts out right at the moment where Hogan is about to be shown getting pulled out of the ring. Outruns the giant, who levels Hogan, chokes down Savage on the ramp, then attacks Hogan again. Sting provides the distraction. Hogan nails Sharp with a chair three times, then elbows the referee. Sting and Hogan see off the giant. The main event is Arn Anderson and Brian Pillman against Sting and Lex Luger. Luger launches Pillman off of the top rope. Pillman lands on Sting, who's trying to apply the Scorpion Deathlock to Anderson. The announcers are playing it off like it was a deliberate from Sting. Sting rolls up Pillman for the win. Flair storms out and starts laying into Luger. Hogan comes out to level up the numbers. Hogan unloads on Flair, but the horsemen escape up the R-way. Hogan goes to attack Luger. Sting stops him. Luger hightails it, and Hogan and Sting shake hands. And that is where we will start um, this month's discussion, specifically the week before. Uh, as, as we referenced in the news, Hulk Hogan faced Sting on the 20th of November edition of WCW Monday Nitro. Uh, that match ran up against a live edition of WWF Monday Night Raw uh, it ran up specifically live against Shawn Michaels versus Owen Hart and during that match obviously you know you'd have to be watching it to know it um, uh, Shawn Michaels collapsed and we got that angle and we discussed that in volume one on the WWF show this was what ran opposed it one interesting note about really that that entire night was that Bischoff clearly had someone in his ear basically telling him when Raw was on an ad break, i.e. whenever they were, because about every kind of five, six minutes, Bischoff would say, if you're thinking of changing the channel, don't. And so that, that to me seemed like they were, they were lining those up, so I thought that was interesting. Um, but Chris, I'll, I'll come to you first. Um, I guess, first of all, Chris, what do you, what do you think of Hogan and Sting? Uh, the match? I thought it was very underwhelming. I I think a large part of that had to do with Hogan playing dark side Hogan and him coming through the crowd and it it just seemed a bit strange and I think since Hogan joined WCW you had this match in sort of 
as a potential, not a dream match, but something that you'd certainly see at some point down the road, and it would be a huge main event level match that w, sorry, WCW would have to go to and people they'd be able to build to it properly and people would be excited to see it. And then you get this sort of weird variation of Hogan that we haven't really discovered what the meaning behind it was. And it's kind of like a throwaway match on Nitro. I know it's the main event of Nitro, but against the live Raw, but it felt very throwaway and not a lot happened in it. It was quite short and it had a DQ no contest finish. So I thought it was a waste. I thought it was underwhelming, but the match itself wasn't too bad. It was just because of how the potential of what it could have been somewhere down the line. It made this a bad match because of the missed opportunities you'd imagine that they've thrown away by doing it on a Nitro. Yeah, I probably should explain. I, I did reference it in the TV review um, before we start reading the pay-per-view. This match did end in a disqualification. No surprise for guessing, but obviously uh, the Dundee do run out. Uh, Rory, your thoughts? Um, well, I, I was about to say they threw this match out with no build. That's not quite true. They did at least uh, reference it a couple of times, in fact about 2,000 times, on the previous week's Nitro. So it's not as if Hogan and Sting just turn up and have the main event out of nowhere. Not quite, anyway. Having said that, I know WCW at the moment is all about defeating Raw with Nitro in the ratings, but there are other ways to try and do that, surely, than Hogan and Sting. I mean, that is a that is a huge pay-per-view match, Hogan and Sting won. I mean, that is that is Starcade level, like it or not, or even, even Bash at the Beach, even, or the two, the two big pay-per-views. And they've thrown it out for free in a <sighs> underwhelming, I agree, eight or nine minute match that ends. I mean, nobody was ever going to win cleanly here anyway. That ends with what is already being deemed by me as the Nitro finish. <laughs> Why with the Dungeon of Doom running out? The match itself, on the other hand, was quite interesting. It was Dark Side Hogan and he was trying to wrestle. He was trying to not necessarily stick to the usual. It was the wrestling that Hogan goes to when he is required. So it's going to be the hammerlock takedown and it's going to be the headlock takedown and it's going to be a couple of suplexes. You know, he isn't Luthez in that situation, but he was at least trying to work something different. And I've got to say as well, watching that match, I, I know it's dark side Hogan and he's kind of inching heel there. But Hogan was pretty much booed during that match. The crowd, the crowd were not split by any means. They were clearly favouring Sting in that one, which again might have had something to do with why when World War Three rolled round, they also quickly got it back into the red and yellow. And oh, let's never talk about that again. So it was a a vaguely interesting match, but one that really. Just should not have happened at this stage. They've they've lost themselves in pay per view buys here, but at the same time, I'm not sure that Bischoff really cares. Yeah, um, I, I think you're right when you say probably that the most likely cause of Hogan's abrupt turn back to um, the red and yellow, and we'll come to that in a minute. Probably was I think this match, mate. Well, perhaps anyway, um, in the sense that Hogan's wrestling Sting, and it's probably a big hit to Hogan's ego that's like, oh crap, I'm not the, I'm not the big guy anymore, even though, you know, he probably still is in, in, in pretty much every way. 
uh, I guess maybe he thought, maybe it's time to end this experiment. We tried it. Maybe, maybe also he may have thought, well, actually, if I need to turn heel in the future, I've proven it can work. Uh, whether he's actually done some significant damage to his character, I guess we'll only find out long term whether, 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 whether people will still accept him. I imagine they will, although I get the feeling it would have been better if he would have just disappeared for a few months. Um, but in terms of the action was, yeah, I would say surprisingly good. And you know what was weird? I, I was watching this match and I remember thinking, it looks like a big deal. Like they cut to an angle as Sting kind of doing his big kind of splash into the corner. I'm like, yeah, this is a big match. And then you just remember, it's not. Um, and you know, I, I, I don't know that they, I don't know that they damaged these two's ability to draw in the future. I, I, I it, it's hard to imagine they improved it, but it, it, I don't feel like if he went to Hogan and Sting in six months, the buyer would be massively affected by the fact that they wrestled a random Nitro main event in November 95. Um, but it's just like, I don't know that this is worth it. I, you know, that's the thing. Like, I imagine it in the news. Like, all that for a 2.5. Like, this is, you know, raw, raw before... Before Nitro was on Monday nights, Raw was doing high threes with Diesel and Bam Bam Bigelow and Undertaker and Jeff Jarrett. You know, now okay, you've got two shows. If they're doing a a two point three and uh, Raw's doing a two point three and Nitro's doing a two point five, that's you know if if ratings combine, and I'm not 100 percent sure you can just add them up. But if if we're going to call it a four point eight, that's still a big improvement. There's still more people watching wrestling on a Monday night, but it's like. You know, Flair and Arn Anderson drew a bigger rating than a 2.5 last month. It's, it's, I don't know. I, I feel like, all right, you beat Raw, but so what? H- have you done any long-term damage? Not only to this as a marquee match, but to Hogan as a draw. Um, Chris, I, I guess next we, we, we should probably come on to th- this Hogan turn back. We discussed it throughout the show. Um, I guess the big question is, is what, what did we achieve with this Hogan turn to the dark side? What, what did we learn? What did he achieve? Uh, and and is, is it, has it been a good thing for him long term? I think it could be a good, for him, good thing for him long term, but only in the sense that the experiment may have given some food to thought later down the line if they think about turning him fully heel in that, okay, we could do it. In terms of short term, it's made him look slightly ridiculous and it may have damaged his like current Hulkamania character ever so slightly. But I don't think we've necessarily achieved anything, but I think we may have learned that there are options worth exploring somewhere down the line, maybe with a few tweaks and not just randomly sort of fading into the dark side. But if Hogan wants to turn heel one day, it is something that you could do. And this was, I mean, if they come back to it at some stage and it works really well, then this has been really worthwhile because people won't remember this, these few short weeks of Hogan turning to the dark side. And it will have laid the groundwork for something big somewhere down the line, because if he ever does turn here, it would be monumental. So it could be really worthwhile. But in terms of where we stand presently, not really. We haven't achieved a great deal. Chris, was Hogan good in his role? He was. I mean, I give him some credit for the fact that he's been playing that Hulkamania character for so long. 
he must be, to a certain extent, very set in his ways. And it's a lot of new ground for him. So generally, I don't think he did badly. When you look at someone like Lex Luger, who's been sort of flipping between characters, but has been a heel like in recent years, as much as like, he's been a face and a heel, basically. Yeah, it depends how how you want to define recent years. I mean, obviously, obviously, since you know July '93, he's been a baby face right up until the point he he turned last month. But yeah, if you want to go back a few more years, then Luke yeah. was was obviously a heel. I I think considering how long he's been playing one character, I didn't think he did too badly, especially when you compare to the ability of other people to to swap sides, basically. Rory, same question. Uh, and I agree. As, it was, I mean, Hogan has, as, as, as Chris Rotty says, Hogan's been the red and the yellow now for over 10 years. Even he must be getting slightly tired of it now. I do think the crowd are, I mean, and I know this was, it was in flair country, but even when Hogan arrived back at, at that Clash of the Champions back in the summer of 94, he wasn't entirely welcomed with open arms even there. So I think they have, maybe a little bit too late, I don't know. They've looked at that and think, okay, let's try and do something a little bit different. And I've got to give them credit for that. But I just think they went too far. It was just straight into, I was about to say B movie. That's we're probably talking about C, D movie stuff here. I mean, if you want to have Hogan turning to the dark side, by all means dress him in black, but that's fine. But just have him as a, a, a semi-tweener ass kicker. Just having going out there and beat, beating the hell out of people. Uh, that would, I think, I think the crowd would respond positively to that. I think the crowd would, would actually quite like to see that sort of thing. He was still pretty much working this, working the same style when he was called upon. Like I know he tried to drop in a little bit more wrestling, like I said, against Sting, but it was still Hulk Hogan in there, just wearing a do-rag and clean shaven. <laughs> yeah, dark, dark side, clean shaven. Oh yes, you can see the link there. Um, so, but having him wearing a phantom of the opera mask and, like, like I said earlier, waggling a sword around, that's not the way to do it. Um, and they've got some possible scope here if they wanted to try to go back to that in the future. And as Chris says, if they did ever turn Hogan, fully turn him, that's, you know, that's big news. That, that, that is big right there. And I personally think that at some point they should suck it up and think, yes, we're going to do this. If Hogan absolutely wants to, of course. But their ideas or their intentions were sound for, with this, but they did not carry it off in a particularly good way. And even though I am also pretty sick of the red and the yellow, I am actually quite glad that at least at this point we put Dark Side Hogan to one side for the time being. Yeah, I... I, I don't know what the point was. I mean, uh, you know, maybe, you know, I mean, Hogan's been getting, you know, mixed reactions before all this started, you know, in certain, certain markets and certain places it was already happening. And I almost wonder whether he was like, well, if I'm getting booed anyway, I might as well have an excuse for it. But it was like, if you weren't going to turn him, what was the point? I, I don't know that you, I don't know that you did earn, learn a lot because he, he wasn't, he wasn't a heel. He was still hmm. wrestling bad guys. He was cutting different promos, but they weren't necessarily negative heel promos. They were just different. I mean, all right, there was a bit where he referenced, you know, the OJ Simpson thing, and it was like, okay. 
but but I don't know what that means, you know. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I I don't know whether if you do it like this, whether his eventual heel turn means less. It, it's kind of a bit like the same thing with Hogan and Sting. I don't know whether doing it once means that when you actually try and make it work, whether it's any less successful. I guess we'll never know. Um, but yeah, equally, I mean, I, I guess we have to say if the plan was let's test the water, Hogan's going away for a bit, we'll see if it works, and then we'll bring him back, and then if we think if we think it worked, we can do it, and the plan has changed, then I guess. But now, now I'm kind of sat here going, what the hell was all that? Like now you're just back in the red and yellow because well, because what? Um, so I don't know uh, whether he did a good job of it. <sighs> It's still Hogan, isn't it? it it's still the, it, it's still the the kind of the, the same promo style. It's still the same in ring style, really. Um, we saw the match against the Giant. It wasn't mass, and I say the same in ring style. He's been wrestling like a heel for a while, but he's been mm. wrestling like a heel while he's been a babyface. So it's kind of like it's still the same in ring style as what you're wrestling, wrestling when you're in the red and yellow. So it, 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 you got there in a really odd way. I don't know. Um, it feels a bit odd now, and I, I, I don't know what we learned other than the crowd wanted to boo Hogan anyway. You compromised him a bit. You put him in a in ring against a guy who was really popular, and the crowd didn't go with him. I don't know. The, the, the weird flip side of all this, I don't know whether Hogan says red and yellow, whether he doesn't get that same reaction anyway. Whether he goes in the ring against Sting on the November 20th Nitro and doesn't get booed out the building either. Yeah. Um, you almost wonder whether they came to him at the beginning of October and said, we want to do you against Sting next month. And I don't think they did. That Best I can tell, the Sting plan was quite late, given that he wasn't meant to be resting this month. But you almost wonder whether he got word they wanted to do the Sting match in rather than later. And he thought, oh, it's probably better if I've got an excuse why I'm not the most popular guy in this match. Um, but I, I don't know that turning yourself really helps that. I don't know that, I don't know the solution to the problem, I'm not getting cheered in a match against Sting, is to turn myself heel. I don't know whether that's the answer. I think you're looking at the wrong question. Anyway, uh, speaking of guy fl- a guy flipping between face and heel, uh, we, we will end this month's show discussing Lex Luger. We were going to do this last month and then we just went so long on Havoc, we actually ran out of time pretty much. Um, <clears throat> but, Lex Luger as a guy who uh, came in as a babyface, we saw the thing with Hogan, um, and then since then we've had this kind of rivalry with Sting. Um, Chris, I, I like it all, other than the alignment with the Dungeon of Doom. I, I kind of, I guess it's difficult if you wanted to play this kind of tweener character, given the fact that basically if you're if you're a heel, you're in the Dungeon of Doom. I know they haven't really established any heels outside of the Dungeon of Doom, given how big that faction have got Chris but I don't I kind of feel like it would have been better if he's not there I don't know what Luger gains being in the Dungeon of Doom other than the fact it kind of crowbars him into the main event angle uh, yeah the pairing with the Dungeon of Doom is something that I'm not a fan of at all but I can see if they kind of have like a temporary alliance if it plays out that way where well they're all heels anyway so they work together occasionally that's fine but for him to be an actual full-fledged member of the group would be slightly ridiculous considering the nature of the gimmicks involved and the nature of his more traditional sort of heel gimmick if he was to go sort of full heel and stop flipping between the two but i think 
the current pairing with him and Jimmy Hart. I, I don't mind that necessarily away from the Dungeon of Doom, but if he was to sort of become a full member and you saw him back in that, back in the lair cutting dark, mysterious promos with the Zodiac and Shark, that's not really where I want to see this go at all. <laughs> Rory? Oh my god, that is one scary thought. Um, <laughs> one thing I do like about this is that, and it's quite realistic actually, is that Luger is a reluctant member of the Dungeon of Doom. Because if I was a member of the Dungeon of Doom, I'd be pretty reluctant as well, but we'll move on from that. I, I think um, Luger's a, a reluctant member of the Dungeon of Doom in real life. <laughs> yes, uh, that's, that's where he is now. Poor old Lex has been spinning his wheels for well, since SummerSlam, it seems to be mentioned on every single pod when Lex Luger comes up, we keep going back to SummerSlam 1993. But I, I, I kind of feel like it will be that forever, but carry on. I think, I think that's done him so much harm. I just, it's a different company, but it's stayed with him now, and I, I don't see it ever leaving, to be honest. However, having said that, this is something where they are trying to go with, and that's fair enough. I, I agree with Chris. I think if they were trying to pair him up with Jimmy Hart outside of the Dungeon of Doom to show that Luger is now a heel. That that would be fine. I'd, I'd, I'd have little problem with that. Shoehorning him into the dungeon when he's basically a bodybuilder. That is who he is and that is pretty much his character. <laughs> it's 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 a real awkward shoehorn. But they have a, 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 the fact that they haven't don't appear to have fully turned him and they're still playing up the alliance with Sting. That gives them a place they can go in the future. They could, they could feud those two at some point, possibly if it, if it does all break down. If Von Luger has has uh, fully gone to the heel side, so there are places they can go with this, and I've got to give them credit for that. But it's, it just feels like it's they they they've come up with this because they've got Lex Luger on their books. And they have to do something with him, so why not give him this? Because if he'd stayed fully face, he would have been number four, and that's probably pushing it. Um, they, 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 they're lumbered with him now, like, like it or not, so they've got to try and go somewhere. So let's give this a shot. I'm, I'm barely willing to give it a try. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we've got the whole thing we mentioned earlier with the promos, which is an issue. Um, and again, I, I, I think part of the reason why he's struggling with the promos is that Lex Luger, the person, is struggling to work out the motivation behind him being in the Dungeon of Doom. And, and we've seen before, you know, uh, again, yeah, as Chris says, we keep going back to the, the thing at SummerSlam night two years ago. We've seen before, Luger motivated and believing himself can be quite a good promo. There's a really good promo segment on, on, on a Raw in the lead up to that SummerSlam show where Luger's playing the All-American gimmick and there's real fire there. Um, and now he's, they're asking to cut promos and it's like, yeah, but what am I saying? And I, I think part of the reason why he's struggling to cut promos is it's, what's my character's motivation? Who, what, who am I, who, who am I trying to be? It's almost like an identity crisis. That's an issue and they need to do a better job with that. That being said, I kind of like the dynamic with Sting. They need to, they need to flash out this friendship. It, it's, it's one thing saying they've been friends for a long time, but like, Tell us more about that, because if you're going to run this further and further, it's it's going to become more hard to believe. Why is Sting the good guy babyface, 
being such a friend with Luger when he's doing all these abhorrent things, you know, attacking attacking other baby faces, aligning himself with a heel group like the Dungeon of Doom. I feel like if they're going to do this quite cool angle with Sting and Luger otherwise being on opposing sides, but when it comes to it being friends and being allies, good angle, but you've got to flesh out this friendship. You've got to tell us why they're sticking with each other through these differences. If you can do that, you've got a funky little angle, which, which, uh, as, as we saw in that kind of that Nitro main event uh, on twenty seventh, it can work because it's it's it, it gives you a lot of different options. It gives you a lot of different ways you can go with the story. But I think the longer time goes on, unless they properly pan out that friendship, we're going to be sat here going, "Why are you two still friends?" Like, what, what, what are you gaining from this friendship? Because Sting and Luger have been... What, one of the reasons Luger came in was because Sting put a good word in for him. This is very real life. This is them doing the thing with the Observer at the start of the show. It's them shooting. It's them being real. Mm-hmm. But remember, 99% of your audience don't know this. Mm-hmm. You've got to cover your tracks a little bit. And, and they need to do that. They need to remind people that are shooting in. You know, Luke hasn't been in WCW for three years. You've got to fill that backstory in again. If they can do that, I think they'll be all right. Anyway, uh, that will bring to a conclusion this month's show. First, I'd like to thank Rory McNamara. Rory, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Loved it. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, you are on Twitter. I am indeed. You can find me on Raw's DM. That's R-O-R-S-D-M. There we go. And Chris White, thank you very much, Chris. Thanks for having me, Bob. Uh, Chris, you uh, are on Twitter where? At ChrisWhite14. Um, Chris, you do it on the wrestling podcast, don't you? Uh, I, I probably shouldn't phrase it like that, but uh, you, you do do you do present uh, your own show, don't you? That's correct. Yes, I do. It's meant to be a weekly show, but um, me and a few friends who live local, we just sort of get together and we talk about Raw. Uh, out of 20 year mode basically present day wrestling we review present day pay-per-views nxt things like that you can find that on itunes and soundcloud it's called podplex city and uh yeah anyone who has a listen would be greatly appreciated thanks for the uh mention bob yeah i know because the reason i hesitate was that i don't often see it every week which is which is what threw me a bit i wasn't sure what the status was but it's meant to come out most weeks that's right isn't it it, it is weekly i think the only time we've missed one is this week because of i haven't re- we haven't got round to reviewing the survivor series yet and that's just because i had a manic week with work basically and couldn't fit it in so Survivor Series have it, but apart from that, I'm pretty sure we haven't missed a week yet. Oh, We've okay. only been going since uh sort of June, July time. So it's not been going too long. But yeah, it's just me and a we've also had a few people we sort of get together and do it in person as well, typically, and one of the people who was sort of the corner one of the cornerstones of the show when we first started doing it moved away. So we we struggled a little bit, but we're plugging along, and it's uh, it's going quite well. So yeah, thanks for the uh, shout out. Uh, and I suppose technically, given that I've got you on this show and I've got you watching USC for next week, technically I am partly to blame for you not getting a shout out this week. Um, technically, I suppose. Uh, but yes, we are we are taking the USC show next week, um, so we, we've got that to cover the Ultimate Ultimate show. Uh, but yeah, if you want to listen to more Monday stuff, do check out Poplex City. Anyway, I've got some plugs of my own to do. Uh, yes, first of all, obviously part one of all you want is the WWF show. Uh, we did over an hour discussing uh, Diesel's title reign as well as doing the. Uh, uh, Survivor Series wrap up if you haven't heard that check that out volume 3 is ECW uh, I think we probably reviewed the best show this year on, on, on the ECW show so if you don't usually check that out it might be worth 
finding that out. November to Remember is a really good show. Um, I think we kind of described it as kind of like a variety show in that there are about six, ten minute plus matches. And I think whatever form of wrestling you like, there was a bit of something for everybody in that. So if you don't usually check out the ECW show, I, I think that that's worth going out of your way to find out. Uh, anyway, you can find us on Twitter at Wrestling20RS. You can find me on Twitter at Bobby Bamber. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Wrestling20YRS. Uh, I've done a few things to the website literally today. Uh, I've been messing about with it. Uh, that was uh, that, that curtailed my uh, prep for this show, so I've got more editing to do now. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a few tweaks I've made. So if you, want, if you haven't been to the website, in a while do go and check that out you'll, you'll find a, a few new features um we're on itunes we're on rss uh sign up for the email newsletter that goes out every month i think that's about it uh i have been bob bamba this has been the volume two of the november 1995 edition of the wrestling 20 years ago podcast and until next time goodbye